Welcome to the show. Um, so today, what do we have for you today? Well, first of all, Bernie helped save a guy's life, and um, we're going to have some waterworks going. I mean, I'll try my best not to tear up for this video, but it is, um, it's as touching as it gets. I mean, it really is, uh, it's special. The video that you're going to see is special. We have uh, the Afghanistan papers were released, and guess what? The entire time we were being lied to about the war. what This should be like the biggest story ever. It should be something that me- the media won't shut up about, but it was just a blip in the radar in the, in the wake of impeachment. Impeachment obviously is getting way more coverage than uh, a bombshell report about how the war in Afghanistan is similar to the war in Iraq and that we were lied to like every step of the way. I mean, there was a collective shrug in Washington, D.C. when that story was released, and that's absolutely devastating because we need to focus on that like a laser. Then, um, Bloomberg's attempt to buy the election is semi-working. It really is something else. You're going you're gonna to see a chart on this. You're, I'm going to give you some new numbers. If you thought the numbers from before were bad about how Bloomberg's trying to buy the election – Wait till you get a load of these numbers. What I will say is this right now. He more than doubled his spending for the election. He more than doubled his spending. I mean, think about that, man. Last time we told you it was, what, $37 million? He spent $37 million on ads? Well, more than doubled. So, oh, it's so bad. God, it's so depressing. Um, and then Biden is beginning to sputter out on another level because – 
there are already hints from his campaign of like, hey, listen, if you guys elect me, I'll only serve one term. Uh, one term pledge is not a good idea, man. It is not a good idea because that's there's a lot of subtext. There's a lot of like, there's messaging there that uh, admits that there are giant problems with the campaign and with him actually in this situation. So anyway, without further ado, let's get started. And we're going to do that with um, America's dad, Bernard Sanders. <clears throat> Bernie Sanders was thanked at one of his town hall style events by a man who was recently at a different Bernie town hall. And he basically went in there and said, my healthcare situation is so out of whack. I have a chronic illness. I can't afford to keep paying this. My premiums, you know, sky high. I need help. And Bernie's like, well, what was your plan to pay for it? And he was like, I don't have one. I was going to kill myself. And we covered that video on the show. You know, Bernie talked to him after his event. Apparently he worked with him and, and tried to find a way to, to set something up so that he can be taken care of properly. I think there was a GoFundMe, and then Bernie also contacted, you know, some other lawmakers, and they worked something out. They, I don't know exactly what they did. I don't know if they somehow maybe got in contact with the in insurance company or whatever. I don't know. But I do know he ended up helping this guy and kind of helped save this guy's life. So now this guy goes to another Bernie event. You're about to see that here. Um, try to hold back the waterworks, man. <laughs> they, they could pop up for sure, but take a look and then we'll discuss. Because of your support, um, Senators Cortez and Masto and Jackie Rosen got involved and straightened out my bills. I'm a, I'm a Navy veteran. I served 20 years. I saved lives. My TRICARE is not acceptable anymore. They took it away. I have Huntington's disease. I'm in stage four. I can barely take care of myself. And I do not have the energy to fight these people. And I was retroactively, retroactively reinstated, and I only had to pay uh, the 29.50 a month from when they canceled my insurance without my knowledge. So I'm looking at, at, at a bill that says account balance $139,000. How are you going to pay off? I can't. I can't. I'm going to kill myself. I don't know. Stop it. You're not going to kill yourself. So thank you for rescuing me. And I have this to give you. This. Leather flight jacket. I want you to have that. That's my original issue flight jacket and a flight patch. Let me say this. John, I so much appreciate this. I am not going to take it because it's a beautiful jacket. It's a jacket that you earned, but I want you to keep it. But the last time I saw you, I will take that. That I will take. Okay. The last time I saw John, uh, it was under good circumstances. 
and we had a brief conversation. Uh, and I'm so happy that working with your senators and our office, uh, we were able to rectify your situation. Let me just say this, not just to John. Uh, as a nation, we can disagree about a war, we can disagree about foreign policy. But when brave people like John put their lives on the line to defend our country, when they come home, they will receive the best quality health care that this country can provide them. And they will not have to go deeply in debt or be harassed by bill collectors for some stupid bureaucratic reason. So, John, thank you so much. That's incredible. That's incredible. You know, if you talk to people who know Bernie in person, a lot of them will tell you that he's um, he's kind of like a you know a curmudgeonly old guy, a cranky old dude. Um, and a lot of people who care deeply about fixing the system are interpersonally awkward or rigid. Um, but yeah, because he's mad because the system is so broken and he sees stuff like this every day, day in and day out. People, you know, telling him their horror stories about what they're dealing with, whether it's one of the 500,000 Americans that go bankrupt every year for medical bills or it's somebody panicking because they think they're going to die because they can't afford more care. Um, If it's one of the many people who are victim to the over $1 trillion in student loan debt that we have in this country, somebody whose life has been torn apart by war, whatever it might be, he hears this stuff all the time. And it would weigh on you too. But he has a steadfast resolve to fix these problems and to fight back against the broken system and correct all these wrongs and... You know, this is this is a, a, like as real a situation as it gets. That poor guy wanted to kill himself, and then now he's going to have more years of life, and um, the situation is fixed. He should have never been in that situation in the first place. We should have Medicare for all, and everything should be free at the point of service. Um, but he was in a terrible situation, and now Bernie helped fix it and literally saved this guy's life. You don't get more touching moments than that. I mean, that the first time I saw that, I teared up. You know, I teared up a little bit now, too, listening to it. Um, on the one hand, you just want to say, wow, what an amazing human being that he's doing this. But then on the other hand, you're also just pissed that anybody's put in the situation that this poor gentleman was put in. It's just not right. It's not right. You know, we have a country where, and we'll talk about this later on in the show, but we spent $7 trillion in Iraq when all was said and done by the year 2053, when you count the interest on the money that, um, you know, we borrowed to pay for the war. Uh, $2 trillion in Afghanistan, and that number's probably probably a lowball estimate because we've been lied to every step of the way when it comes to the Afghanistan war as well. 
So that's $9 trillion right there. We have all that money for the endless war. We, we have all the money in the world for, what is it, a $14 trillion bailout of Wall Street. The list goes on and on of our misaligned priorities brought about by corruption, brought about by money in politics, military industrial complex. But we don't have money to make sure everybody has health care. That's ridiculous. And the salt in the wound, that's just this, the overarching fact is that every other developed country has one version or another of universal health care. And we don't. So um, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. The American people have to wake up, and we need to, uh, we need to all be part of this mass movement to fix the problem. And we know who the leader is to fix the problems. That doesn't mean that we don't, we don't have a lot of work to do ourselves, because I say it every show, we're going to have to get out in the streets. We're going to have to get out in the streets in order to get the policies that we know are the right policies. We just have to. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, because probably over half the Democratic Party is also going to try to obstruct Bernie, along with the entire Republican Party in D.C. So he's going to need us. But what does this show here? Every time we've needed him, He's been there for us. He's helped us out. He has a track record of decades of fighting for you and me. And this is just like one of those instances where it's the culmination of all that work, and you see the true character of this guy. Um, what else is there to say? What else is there to say? I wish that voter the best, and I hope everything's okay for him from here on. Um, and Bernie is just absolutely incredible. I mean, you hate to make, like, crude comparisons here, but can you imagine a situation like that where a voter says to Hillary Clinton, oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to kill myself because I can't pay my bills. And she's like, whoa, 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 let's work something out. Let's fix something. And then Hillary meets with the voter afterwards and finds a way to help this person out. And then the voter comes back at a future event and says, I'm, I want to give you this thing, which means the world to me, my flight jacket, because like you helped save me. You helped save my life, literally. I mean, they would probably pay millions for an authentic moment like that. But they wouldn't, it's not because, like, the outcome is the thing that matters the most to them. It's the perception from the public of what happened here that they yearn for. They yearn for the public viewing them in that way of, like, oh, my God, what an amazing person, what an authentic person who's actually, who actually cares and is actually trying to help. But you can't imagine that situation with Hillary. You can't imagine, and this isn't just to pick on Hillary. You name, you know, the other politicians. 98% of them, you're not going to get a moment like this because they probably don't care enough to meet with the person afterwards and really iron out the details and really help them in a very personal way. But with Bernie, he does. With Bernie, he does. So I hate to I'm not a I'm not a big proponent of voter blaming. But good lord don't mess this up guys. <laughs> we have a once in a generation opportunity. If you're watching this video, don't mess this up. There's no more messing around. If this guy doesn't get elected, we don't know the next chance we'll have to have a real ally to the people in the White House. It's rare, it's few and far between. But there's not an ounce of BSery in Donald in Donald Trump. Whoa. <laughs> yes, there is. <laughs> There's not an ounce of BSery in Bernie Sanders, and that's crystal clear.
Okay. Next. We're going to talk about the war in Afghanistan now because this is, uh, this is everything here. Oh, wait. Did I mess this up already? Did I mess this up already? Okay, no, I'm wrong. I got one more on Bernie. One more on America's dad, Bernard. There's a new Quinnipiac poll out of young voters, and you're going to enjoy this one. Democratic primary voters under 35 years old, under 35, Bernie, 52 percent, 52 in a field of like 717 people, Warren, 17 percent, Biden, 11 percent, Yang, 7 percent, Gabbard, 3 percent. Buttigieg, 2%. Bloomberg, 2%. Everyone else, 1% or less. Wow. I've said this before. I'll say it again. The strongest divide we have in this country is the class divide. And then right outside of that is the generational divide. Um, There is a deep and profound generational divide in this country where – Older voters, like, surface-level change while ultimately protecting the status quo because they're a lot more comfortable as a general rule than younger voters. Younger voters want deep changes to the system, profound changes to the system, top-down reform, political revolution, if you will. So... If you look at a poll of, like, the older you get, the more these results are just totally flipped. Totally flipped. They love, like, Biden and and Buttigieg, you know? But with younger voters, under 35, forget it. It's just, it's all Bernie all day long. I mean, again, in a, he didn't even just win a plurality. He won a majority. And there's, like, you know, more people running in this race than people on all NBA teams combined. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's absurd. 52%. That's gigantic. So here's the main takeaway. If young voters turn out, Bernie wins. Bernie wins this election. He wins. If young voters turn out, he wins. And what did I tell you before? I've done segments before where I've explained, guys, regular polls actually do low-key underestimate Bernie, because if you look at the methodology, almost all the time, they don't have a really um, statistically significant chunk of younger voters. So, but you can't blame the pollsters, because what they're doing is they're saying, okay, let's poll likely voters. And when you poll likely voters, what numbers are you going to go off of? Well, I mean, empirically speaking, it's probably best to just say, what was the turnout in the last election? What was the turnout in the last election? Okay, so copy those turnout numbers and then tell me how everybody's going to do. But that's the thing, is like any election that Bernie Sanders would win, it wouldn't be anywhere near the 2016 turnout numbers. It would dwarf the 2016 turnout numbers. We're talking, you know, going above and beyond the Obama turnout numbers. 
So there is like a weird underestimating of Bernie that happens. I don't think it's necessarily because in the case of the pollsters, there's a backroom conspiracy. I just think they have to they have to guess what they think the turnout's going to be, and the best way to do that is kind of default to the 2016 numbers. Um, but I don't think that's accurate. I just don't. So when you actually when you actually ask the question to voters under 35, who do you prefer? By far and away, it's Bernie Sanders. By far and away, more than doubles the person in second, who's Warren, by the way. So if youth if the youth vote turns out. Bernie wins, but the youth vote has to turn out. And this is that's the big question mark is older voters always vote. I mean, they view it as a civic duty, and so they go. Even if they don't like the candidates, they're like, I don't care. I'll go and vote for the lesser evil. Don't care. Youth voters are more like, you know, no, 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 you have to give me a reason to vote. If you give me a lesser evil choice, a lot of them are going to say, hmm, I got better things to do. So... But you have to understand, this isn't a lesser evil choice. <laughs> this is like the real deal Holyfield. So will they turn out? Yet to be seen. Turnout is definitely going to be higher than 2016, I would reckon. Um, but if there is a giant youth turnout, if the numbers are high, man, this is a good sign for Bernie. You know, in the 2016 election, there was like a sleeper pro-Trump vote because some people were too ashamed to say to a pollster, like, yeah, I support Trump. So the polls did somewhat underestimate him. Not as much as people think because um, he still lost the popular vote. But his, his support was dispersed throughout the country in the exact right way to win the Electoral College. But there was a little bit of a sleeper Trump vote. In this instance, we're actually banking on like a little bit of a sleeper Bernie vote. He's a solid second place right now behind Biden, and Biden's sputtering out is all you know. But they're still, we're still relying on a little bit of a sleeper Bernie vote, kind of like Michigan. Remember when... Bernie was down in the polls. I don't even remember the number. 20%, 30% in the polls going into the Michigan primary in 2016, and he won. He won it. We're looking at a situation like that in 2020, but I don't even want to leave it up to chance like that, guys. You know, I got that, that killer instinct mindset when it comes to this stuff. I want Bernie to blow him out of the water to the point where it's, the election is unstealable. You know, I want him in a primary with 9,312 candidates, I want him to win with like 87% of the vote. So, and I want him to work so hard and all of us to work so hard where it gets to that point. But it, what an amazing poll this is, and this does tell a story. Um, the other interesting point is, and I'm going to botch this so hard because I suck at math. Let me just take out the calculator. Why are we playing around? There's no reason to play around. I'm a grown-ass man. I've earned the right to use a calculator for basic math. <laughs> um, so let's go 52 plus 17 plus 7 plus 3 equals 79%. So what I did there is I took um, the candidates who are either anti-establishment or one foot in the corporate camp, one foot in the anti-establishment camp. I'm referring to Warren for that one. But the anti-establishment ones, I think, are clear. Bernie, Tulsi, and Yang. If you put together all of the either anti-establishment candidates and the semi-anti-establishment candidates, 79% young voters have their support behind those candidates. The pro-establishment candidates only have 21% support among young voters. 
I cannot tell you how good of a sign that is. You have no idea how good of a sign that is. That means that, you know, like this show, for example, and the demographic that we're largely talking to according to the numbers, like it, it's not that online is not real life. No, online is real life. It, it is to a large extent real life because that's the reaction you would think if you watch Secular Talk, if you watch any other new media shows. You get the sense of like, hmm, it appears like about 8 out of 10 of these people are totally in favor of one or another anti-establishment candidate. Wow. Yes, that's the case. <laughs> so, I mean, really, again, it goes back to that generational divide thing, which is the problems mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, like, they're still being spoon-fed nonsense through traditional media, corporate media, um, and they're still, like, in the dark about what makes the anti-establishment candidate so much better. And they just are a lot more comfy financially, so they're not as much in favor of reform, you know? I mean, the ones who are calling for the biggest change are the ones who are doing the best among young people. So, and by the way, that that Biden number of 11% with people under 35, I would reckon that at least half of that is just a name recognition thing. So there's some promising stuff in this poll, which is why I wanted to share it with you. It's not all the time we get, you know, polls like this that kind of very clearly verify a narrative, but that is what we have here. Okay. Next. All right, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That's who's up next. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted something that I think merits a longer conversation uh, because I do see a divide on the left when it comes to this issue, and I want to dive into it here. So this is what she said. I go back and forth on whether to go on Fox News. The main reason I haven't is squaring the fact that the ad revenue from it bankrolls a white supremacist sympathizer to broadcast an hour-long production of unmitigated racism without any accountability whatsoever. And uh, you can see the tweet that she's responding to there. Andrew Lawrence um, says, Tucker Carlson guest says that AOC's district is dirty, and the reason it's so dirty is because it's one of the least American districts in the country. It's occupied by relatively few American citizens. So, I mean, it goes without saying that's a grotesque comment. It's an absurd comment. It's a pathetic comment. Um, It is a bigoted comment, for sure. And it should be condemned, and it's just gross. Now, having said that, I don't think that's a reason to never go on the network. Now, I know there's a lot of you guys who disagree with me, um, but I'm going to make my case here. So, first of all, every mainstream network, every one, every mainstream news network pushed the Iraq war relentlessly. They were more than happy to go along with the propaganda of the Bush administration. So, 
if we're really going to be objective about this and we really have standards about where we go and where we don't go, well, any network that's responsible for pushing that narrative is responsible for getting us into a war that killed a minimum 200,000 Iraqi civilians. Poor brown people. Minimum 200,000. Some estimates are over a million innocent brown people murdered, killed. So any criticism you levy of Fox News is just as valid of the other networks. And then there gets, you get into the other question of just like, you know, factual accountability. We got Rachel Maddow, who's been spreading Russiagate conspiracy theories um, since Trump's been in office and just over-the-top, proven, verified, false, wrong about everything she was pushing. She even did fear-mongering about the Russian threat, about how they might shut off the power when it's cold out in northern parts of the U.S., and what are we going to do then? Like, this is just bordering on bigotry and hysteria, anti-Russian bigotry. So, you know, again, if we're going to have standards here, we're going to say, Yeah, I mean, Fox News is loathsome. And I think it's a fair point to say they're the worst because they're consistently more wrong than everybody else and they're consistently more bigoted than everybody else. But having said that, any reasonable, you know, criteria would say, I got to leave all of them out because they're all miserable. They've all either pushed for illegal wars um, or had bigoted coverage or just are riddled with factual inaccuracies or their, their outrage meter is broken and they focus on all the wrong things and they don't cover the things that really matter. So again, any objective criteria would lead you to that conclusion. And I don't think this is a false equivalence to say that. I think it's an actual equivalence, that they're all really, really, really bad. But that leads to the actual point, which is it's not about the networks themselves. It's about the people watching the networks. And Are there going to be some TFGs among the people watching the networks? Absolutely. Of course there are. But does that mean you shouldn't go on the network? No. No, not at all. It's about getting who is gettable. And if you really believe in your ideology, you really believe what you're pushing for, well, then of course you go everywhere to try to spread your your message. There's an implied point here when you say it's not worthy to go on there, and that is like I will – lump off all the viewers of that network into the irredeemable, deplorable basket. And they're all too far gone, and so I'm not going to waste my time. Well, then, that's literally saying I'm just going to preach to the choir from now until forever. Congratulations. Very bold of you. <laughs> that's not, like, that's, that's saying I want to doom leftism to be a, you know, a cool kid subculture from now until the end of time. I don't want that to be the case. I want to change minds. I want to bring people into the fray. I want to expand you know, the beliefs that I'm espousing, therefore making it more likely we get it implemented. The more, the merrier. So I just, I fundamentally disagree with this idea. I think it's a very, very bad idea. And just look at it from a raw numbers perspective. Let's say Fox News has a million viewers, okay, on any given show, which, by the way, is roughly about correct, depending on what time of day you're looking. A million viewers. Let's say, let's be kind to... AOC's position here and say 90% of those viewers are going to go into the interview hating the lefty and they're going to go out of the interview hating the lefty. 90%. 90%. Well, 10% 
let's you'll you'll get like these are rough numbers obviously i'm just making them up but i'm still being like overly kind to her position here maybe like nine out of a hundred nine percent of those people will at least hear one thing she says and go you know that one wasn't a bad point i might not disagree with her overall but when she crafted that bill to go after the predatory payday lenders to limit interest rates to 12 percent to stop these rapacious companies from stealing from the american people i kind of agree with that one that one makes sense so you got nine percent are going to go okay she at least has one point but then what if there's one percent who hears like i don't know two or three points she makes and says well that one that one wasn't bad and that one wasn't bad either and okay oh well that was a decent point well then you've started the movement towards a deconversion now it's not it's not an overnight thing nobody just hears you once and they're like oh sold you got no because people are complex and it's taken them years and years and years to build up to where they are now and their identity can be somewhat tied into it and so it's a long process it's a long arduous road but deconversions happen they absolutely happen with some percentage of people they absolutely happen what if you could be the spark that initiates that what if just one percent of the viewers heard what you said think you made multiple good points and next thing you know they're off to the races and maybe six months from now they kind of come to the position of i'm a lefty because it's going to happen with some percentage we could argue over the percentage you could say kyle i don't think it's one percent maybe it's 0.5 percent okay but one percent of one million is 10,000 people. 0.5% is 5,000. Is it worth it to go into the lion's den to change 5,000 minds or change 10,000 minds in the long run? Absolutely. Because what's the alternative? The alternative is you don't go in there, and then Fox News is still wall-to-wall terrible propaganda all day long. Wouldn't you want to puncture that bubble and say, okay, today it was 98% propaganda, but my 2% that I added to the network today was actually perfectly reasonable and made sense. So I offered a voice that countered the narrative. Don't you want to do that? I mean, that's how you convert people. And again, even if we're talking about you could come up with incredibly rigid numbers, but here's what I guarantee you. It ain't going to be 0%. There's no way you're going to not change anybody's mind. That's not going to happen. You're going to change, even if it's 0.01%, you're changing somebody's mind. It might take a while, but you're going to change their mind, especially if you believe in your message. And she believes in her message. So I don't, this mindset on the left, I really want to go away. This idea that like, well, some people aren't worthy of trying to get. Now, by the way, I want to make this crystal clear because then the counter argument to me is like, oh my God, that's so naive. Are you saying nobody's too far gone? No, I literally have a term for it. TFG, too far gone. (laughs) Of course there are some people who are too far gone. But who cares if they're too far gone? You're not going to get them anyway. And so they hate you going into the interview. They hate you going out of the interview. Whoop-de-doo. Who cares? <laughs> Nothing changed. That's fine. That's whatever. You want to hate me? Hate me. Who cares? I don't care. I don't care. Hate me all you want. It, may, it makes no difference. But if I could change 1% of the people's minds, that's a huge net benefit. That's a huge net benefit. Now, repeat that over, I don't know, 12 times. 12 times you go on Fox News, let's say, over the next five years. Repeat that process 12 times. We're starting to really grow. So, I mean, that's, that's my takeaway from it. And if you say, because, again, one of the main criticisms of this is, oh, my God, that's so naive of you to think that this is the case. Is it? Is it? Bernie Sanders went on Fox News and had probably his best town hall segment. And 
converted plenty of people. Plenty of people were like, wow, yeah, that's actually a really good point. I know because my brother-in-law texted me about one of his friends who's been a Republican his whole life. And the dude texted him during the Bernie Sanders town hall and said, listen, man, if it's Bernie versus Trump, I'm going to vote for Bernie. This is a lifelong Republican. What was his reasoning? I have kids, and obviously this guy wants to fix the system and is looking out for us and cares about the country. More so than Trump, this guy believes. And he's a Republican. Now, that's just one example. And you could say that's anecdotal. Fair. Fair enough. I'm not, argu- I'm not counter-arguing that. But there's obviously virtue in going into the lion's den, especially if you really believe what you're talking about. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez does really believe what she's talking about. They're, they are gonna, they're going to lie about you. They're going to twist your words. But when you show up and all of a sudden your face is humanized to some percentage of those people, that makes all the difference in the world. Bernie Sanders went on Joe Rogan's podcast. Now, Joe Rogan is not, by any stretch of the imagination, comparable to Fox News. I just want to be clear about that. He's immensely better beyond them by far. Um, but he certainly has a bipartisan array of guests. For sure, he certainly has a bipartisan audience. His audience is all over the place politically. Bernie Sanders showed up there. If you read the comments, you would be floored. Because people were like, I thought this guy was an old crank. Now I see he's really, really reasonable. You know, I said before, you don't get the deconversions that happen like that. Actually, when Bernie went on Rogan, you may have seen some of those. (laughs) You literally may have seen some of those. So... If you read the comments, minds were changed, man. So we got to get out of this mindset of being, like, holier than thou, just saying, well, you know, if you're not already with me, you're an irredeemable deplorable. You absolutely can, I'm not saying ever, bite your tongue about something you believe in. No. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. You want to go on there and be like, hey, by the way, that was a really bigoted segment you did? Of course, by all means, go do it. But. You can make that case directly to their face. And I don't, I really dislike this idea that unfortunately a lot of people on the left have of like, no, you don't even bother to go on there because they're all too far gone and there's no point in it. There's no benefit of it. I just think that's factually wrong. I think that's mathematically wrong. So I don't know, maybe with a, with a lot of people, and I'm not talking about AOC here because she, I don't know what she thinks about it, but I think there are maybe some people on the left who are just, they don't, they don't want to go into a situation where they know nine out of 10 people are going to not like them going in and not like them going out. And they won't be able to take the torrent of like abuse and annoyance of people coming after them. And I could understand that from a personal perspective. What I'm saying is from a strategic perspective and from a perspective of expanding a left message as far as possible, you should be able to put your feelings aside. Put your feelings aside. Yeah, the times I've gone on Fox News, I'm sure nine out of ten people in the audience were like, forget this guy. I hate this guy. One out of ten might be watching this segment right now and agreeing with everything I'm saying. Okay.
All right, next. All right, this is the big segment, baby. This is the uh, war in Afghanistan one. The Washington Post, for the first time in a long time, actually did some pretty amazing journalism about the war in Afghanistan. Um, They basically dug up hidden interviews from 2014 that were suppressed by the government. So there was this big report, the SIGAR report, Special Investigator, Special Inspector General report in Afghanistan. That does not spell SIGAR. (laughs) I, I digress. Scratch that. All you need to know is there was a report on Afghanistan, and the responses were not what the military industrial complex wanted, and uh, so they were just like, mm, X on the report scary, and then they basically hid a lot of the interviews because they were so damning about what was going on there. Um, so there are people directly involved with the war who are just like, we have no clue what's going on over there. We have no clue what our mission is. We're totally aimless, and we're just there. Now, you guys might hear that and go, well, duh, of course. that We, we knew that's what was going on. But it shouldn't be like that. I mean, it shouldn't be like that. If we're at a war, and we're putting American lives on the line, and we're potentially killing civilians over there, and we're wasting all this money, you damn well better have some goals. You damn well better have a mission. You better have, you know, an overarching philosophy and an end, an end game and, like, all that stuff you need to have. But, no, they didn't. So the worst possible thing you could think of when it came to the war in Afghanistan, that was the reality. The reality was, no, we're aimless and we're here. We don't even know why we're here. We don't even know what's going on. And it gets even worse than that. So first I want to show you a segment here. This is uh, Sagar from Rising on Hill TV. Let's watch his uh, spiel on it, and then I want to come back and give you more information. Yesterday, all three cable networks went live for more than 10 hours to bring you the riveting rival testimony of the House Intelligence Committee counsels from the Republican and Democrat side. As you can imagine, they disagreed with each other. The Democrats asked questions to get sound bites for Twitter to the Republican one, and the Republicans did the same to the Democrat. And when the pundit class was done salivating over this elite drama, over whether it's okay to temporarily endanger Ukrainian military aid, they picked up a story of equal importance, whether the FBI investigation into President Trump was properly initiated and whether these officials conducted themselves above board. As predicted, MSNBC and the New York Times spun the newly released IG report as vindicating for the FBI, conservatives pointed out the many documented instances of abuse of power. But both these stories perfectly tell you the obsessions of our political elite. Their bad faith blame games marked as a real struggle over who gets to pull the levers of our American oligarchy. And they utterly pale in comparison to the one that we briefly touched on this show yesterday, when the Washington Post revealed a secret government report which details American officials admitting on the record that for nearly two decades we were systematically lied to about the war in Afghanistan and that statistics were manipulated at the request of the White House and the Pentagon to paint a rosier picture that to this day we have no idea what we are doing in that country. How much time do you think that that got on cable news? I'll tell you the answer, barely any, because that story broke in the morning before all these very important shenanigans started. If there is going to be a long congressional inquiry 
on this? Shouldn't every single U.S. official who secretly told U.S. government investigators they lied to us come and be forced to admit it to our faces? And if we are to have a long report on the conduct on the conduct of American government officials and find failures, recommends, fixes, like that IG report, shouldn't we have that about a war that has cost us $2 trillion? Impeachment is a 46-46 issue. I can bet you that this would have 100% support. But sadly, I, like you, know this will never happen because it implicates everybody. A report released by the Washington Post demonstrates perfectly the bipartisan boondoggle that is the war in Afghanistan. The Obama White House lied to us just as much as the Bush White House and probably just as much as the Trump White House. There are no cheap political points to be scored. And besides, everybody is making too much damn money. The report really shows, in its totality, how people of immense power can still be cowed by the military-industrial complex anytime they had misgivings about what was going on in Afghanistan. As a former three-star general who was Afghan policy head for Obama and the Bush White House, Douglas Lute said to investigators, quote, we were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing. What are we trying to do here? We didn't have the foggiest notion of what we were undertaking. Furthermore, a 2017 study even found that the swing states of Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin would have gone for Hillary Clinton if the number of war casualties were lower. Higher military casualties can literally swing elections, as they should. All of this is to say is that if we're going to have a national debate over something, let it be this. Let it be about how we spend billions of dollars a day in a godforsaken part of the world that doesn't want us there. And let all of you who are voting in the Democratic Party think long and hard about who you decide to support. Because if you're not ready on day one to totally commit yourself to a different direction, you're just going to get steamrolled like all of the rest of them. Sauger is a conservative, for those of you who don't know. Now, he is blown away by this report, as am I, as a lefty. So I want to give you some more of the details here and um, what really went on in the Afghanistan war. So one of the big findings of the paper is that the government routinely manipulated numbers to mislead the public into thinking we were winning, whatever winning means, because, again, they didn't bother to define what winning would be. But they routinely misled the public as to how well we're doing. So here's an example of that. What they would do is, so Obama ordered the surge in Afghanistan. The idea was to finally win the war and then come home. You order the surge, tens of thousands more troops. And what would happen is the violence would go up when we do the surge. So there would be more Taliban bombings. There would be more violence across the board. What the government would do is they would then you know, have these uh, committee hearings where they're asking the generals, like, how are we doing in the surge, sir? And they would be like, well, we're doing really well, and our numbers show us that uh, the insurgency is in its last throes. And the increase in violence is because they're getting desperate and they're on the way out. That's what they would say. So stop and think about that for a second, because logically it makes no sense. If you do the surge and violence goes up, they say, well, that's obviously a sign of victory, because that means they're in their last throes and it's about to be a wrap for them, so they're desperate. If the violence goes down, what do they say? They go, oh, the surge is working. Violence has subsided. So obviously that's a win. Nobody wants more violence. 
so then wait, now it's now it's a non-falsifiable claim. No matter what happens, they square peg round hole the situation, and they're like, oh, no, but that's what we wanted to happen. Oh, the violence went up? No, 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 we wanted that, and that's a sign we're winning. Oh, the violence went down? Oh, no, no, we wanted that, and that's a sign we're winning. So no matter what happens, you take that as a sign that you're winning. And this also happened in Iraq, by the way, when they did the surge in Iraq. Same thing. Same thing. They said the same thing. Oh, the violence went up? That's a sign we're winning. Oh, the violence went down? Oh, that's a sign we're winning. So no matter what happens, whenever they'd have these hearings, the military officials with their, you know, their proper military uniforms on, with their square jaws, would sit there and be like, yes, we're winning this war. And they wouldn't, it would never make any sense what they were saying. So that's the first thing, which should have been a red flag to everybody. And by the way, again, we're going to get back to the media, but shame on the media for not, if I could spot that logical contradiction, that it's a non-falsifiable claim, and no matter what you say, you're winning, how come they can't see it? How come they can't see it? Another thing is, we learned from these papers, that the United States allowed our Afghanistan allies who are warlords, by the way, to steal money like crazy, to loot the treasury, to get away with, you know, robbing us a thousand different ways. These are people who, and I'm going based off previous reporting, but we covered it on the show. Some of these people had child sex slaves. And then when U.S. soldiers blew the whistle on it and were like, Hey, dog, I know that this guy's supposed to be our ally, but they got, like, a kid chained to the bed. What are we talking about here? What would happen? Discharged. If you spoke up and you said, I see some stuff that's not okay with our allies, discharged. I don't know if they'd honorably discharge them or dishonorably discharge them, but they discharge them. And they're like, let me introduce you to my new website, www.shh.com. So the United States is there in Afghanistan arguing we're here to bring democracy and freedom and fix this country, and our allies are warlords who have child sex slaves out in the open? Do you really grasp how terrible that is? Do you really grasp how grotesque that is? Do you understand how that totally blows up the notion that We care about freedom. We care about democracy. We care about doing the right thing. We care about being the world police. There's got to be ulterior motives, and Sagar touched on him there. He said, hey, man, a lot of people were making a lot of money, namely the military-industrial complex. Go talk to Boeing. Go talk to Honeywell. Go talk to Raytheon. Go talk to, in the case of Iraq, Halliburton, KBR. Go talk to all these defense contractors. They are fantastically wealthy as a result of these wars. $7 $7 trillion spent in Iraq when all is said and done by 2053. Uh, Afghanistan, $2 trillion. That's $9 trillion right there, all on wars where nobody's even bothering to define what victory would mean. What would that mean? What does that mean? What does it mean? How do you win? What's winning? What is it? What is winning? Well, uh, well we got attacked on 9-11, so we have to get Osama bin Laden. He's dead. He's been dead for a while. Why didn't you immediately pack up and come home immediately after he was killed? Well, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein had something to do with 9-11, even though he didn't at all, by the way. But what we're, we're going to say this at, in, the, in the aftermath that it's Saddam Hussein's fault. He's dead. He's dead. Why aren't you coming home? Why aren't you coming home? Why aren't you coming home? Well, you know, al-Qaeda is a massive problem in Afghanistan. Well, our own intelligence agencies 
say there's fewer than 100 al-Qaeda members in Afghanistan. Declare victory and come home. What are you doing? Ah, maybe it's, maybe there are ulterior motives. Maybe it is about the military-industrial complex province. Maybe it is about securing the mineral wealth that's in Afghanistan. Maybe it is about the massive oil wealth that's in Iraq. Maybe it's about controlling this region of the world geopolitically because we view ourselves as on a chessboard with Russia and we don't want to allow them to get anywhere near that kind of power that we already have. Maybe there are other concerns. All the U.S. soldiers who die in the meantime, meh, collateral damage. Just tell them we're fighting for freedom as they protect warlords with child sex slaves. It's fine. All the dead civilians in Iraq and Afghanistan, got to break a couple legs to make an omelet, am I right? Behind the scenes, they were admitting the top people in charge of the war. They were like, okay, I don't know what we're doing there. I don't know what our goal is. We don't even know what's going on. There were stories of like soldiers going to the generals like, all right, we're here. Show us where the bad guys are. And they're like, bad guys? See, what happened was there was someone's in my eyes, and I don't even know what we were sent out here, and then I saw that there was over the top of the hill, and then I don't even know if I see him no more. Guys, it, this was all a sham. All of it. You were lied to by George W. Bush. You're lied to by Barack Obama. Now you're lied to by Donald Trump. Obama and Trump both at least nominally campaigned on getting out of some of these wars. And they're increasing them. They're increasing them. And now we learn it was all, we've been lied to every step of the way. Every step of the way we've been lied to. There is no goal. How many times have I told you? Go ask somebody who's still for the Iraq war or the Afghanistan war. Oh, okay, you're for the war? Define victory. You'll hear crickets because they have nothing to say. How can you possibly be for a war and not even know why you're there? How? 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 Oh, my God. This entire time we've been lied to, every step of the way. Now, the final part, and Sagar touched on this very well, the media. This report was done in 2014. It wasn't released until now. Credit to the Washington Post. That's not a sentence you hear me say often, but in this case, you're hearing me say it. How terrible is our media that as we have multiple wars going on, they're over there. Let's cover anything but that. Your job is to be a check on the government, a check on the people in power. You're not doing that. You're doing the opposite. You're in cahoots with them. You are. You're in cahoots with them. You're covering it up with them. And then even now, after this is released, years too late, because it should have been released at the time, we're in year 18 of the war in Afghanistan. They're barely even discussing it. Guys, impeachment got like 20 times more coverage then this bombshell story about how the same way we were lied in, to uh, in the war in Iraq, we've been lied to throughout the entire Afghanistan war, every step of the way. The media is barely discussing it. The impeachment's getting way more coverage. And so what happens, guys? The story's going to go away. It's going to go away. 
and we're just we're still going to be in Afghanistan. We're still going to be in Iraq. We're still going to be wasting U.S. taxpayer money, U.S. soldiers' lives, and killing innocent civilians over there because the media refuses to calibrate their outrage meter properly. They're saving all their outrage for impeachment and for diving into the details of some goofball testimony. Something that we know, by the way, it's going to get through the House, and everybody's going to be so insufferable and smug. Oh, we got him. We got Trump. Then it's going to die in the Senate, and all the slay queen memes for Nancy Pelosi are going to feel like they're a million years in the past. Everybody's going to go, wow, who could have seen this coming? I can't believe this died in the Senate. I'm telling you right now that's what's going to happen. We know that's what's going to happen. All the time spent on this, the majority of every single day of the news covering that, when we know how it's going to end up, I'm not giving you my opinion. (laughs) I'm giving you the facts. You could say, well, you're wrong, Kyle, because maybe it doesn't even get through the House. Fair. But I think it is going to get through the House. But in terms of the Senate, it's dying in the Senate. But you're spending the majority of every single day on something that you know is a dead end. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you can't cover impeachment. Of course you can. It's happening. It's news. Cover it. But we just got a bombshell story about how an 18-year war we've been in where we spent $2 trillion, thousands of American lives, and thousands of civilians on the other side, how it was all nonsense, how we're protecting warlords who have child sex slaves, how we were repeatedly lied to by generals in their fancy military uniforms when they kept telling us, oh, yes, we just need a little more time, and uh, this is a good sign that the violence is going up because that means that we're winning. In a system that made sense, this would be the story that gets the breathless 14-hour coverage in one day, and it would be breathless coverage every single day until finally the government says, no mas, we're pulling out of Afghanistan. No mas, we're doing it. But instead, since the media didn't calibrate their, their outrage meter, they don't really care. They don't really care. Some of them, by the way, some of the networks take money from the military-industrial complex. Isn't that a weird coincidence that they're not going to be outraged over this, but they're getting money from the people who got rich as a result of this. And everybody gets screwed in the meantime. And everything just keeps going as is. It's time to change it, man. We can't take this anymore. This is insanity. This is sheer insanity. You're getting more coverage of this here than you're going to get on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News all day combined. However long this segment is, I don't know how long this segment is, roughly 20 minutes, whatever it might be, this is more coverage you're going to get on a YouTube show and more in-depth coverage than you're going to get from all the major networks combined. Again, that's not because I'm so great. It's because they are so, 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 so bad. War is an incredibly serious endeavor, and it should be treated as such, but it's not. They don't care. Even though we've been lied to repeatedly, even with all the disastrous consequences, even though we know it's going nowhere and nobody can even define victory, even though the polls show less than 20% of the American people want to be in Iraq, want to be in Afghanistan, they don't care. They're not going to do their job properly, and the military-industrial complex will keep chugging on. We have to put an end to this. And I have to admit at this point, I don't even know how we're going to do it, but we have to put an end to it. Does it mean all of us getting out in the street? Does it mean a general strike? Does it mean adding that to our list of demands when we do a general strike for Medicare for All and free college? Do we add end all the wars to that? Because I think we should. Because this is sheer lunacy. This is a country that has lost its way. 
you do know that we used to say about Afghanistan, it's the graveyard of empires, we called it, because previous empires, their time was up because they wasted so much blood and treasure in Afghanistan. The Soviet Union spent, I think, over a decade in Afghanistan, and we called it the graveyard of empires. The Soviet Union collapsed after their, the war in Afghanistan. We've been there 18 years. We've been there almost, probably almost double the amount of time that the Soviet Union was in there. And it already has the nickname, the Graveyard of Empires. What are we doing? There's no captain steering the ship, man. There's no captain steering the ship. I don't even know if we could turn this Titanic around. It's that bad. Okay. All right, I'm going to take a break. When we come back, Michael Bloomberg surged in some national polls, and I'm going to show you why that is and how that is. And then um, Republicans are having a secret meeting with Trump on impeachment, and I'll tell you what's going on behind the scenes. So stay right there with that, and we'll, uh, we'll come back with that and much more.
Son of a business. All right, we're back, guys. Corin just texted me. Corin just texted me talking about the President's Cup. That's the the golf event. The United States was a massive favorite going into it, and then we got clobbered in the first uh, first round of matches. Um, so it's interesting to see what's going to happen from here on out. They're playing in Australia, so it's at night. I'm responding to him. Okay. Uh, all right, Michael Bloomberg is next on the chopping block. And <laughs> that's a funny thing to say since he's a billionaire and a lot of people talk about guillotines with billionaires. I do not mean it in that way. I mean it in the sense that he's the next on the show. The next up on the showington. All right, here we go. Here we go. I feel no pleasure in reporting this. But Michael Bloomberg has indeed surged in some national polls. So let me show you the real clear politics average of polls here. Now, I will say up front, yes, there are, um, there are criticisms of the real clear politics average. Um, it's not like perfectly objective, but I do think that in this instance, when it comes to Bloomberg, you do get a relatively accurate snapshot here. So I want to show you this because... Yeah, it's, uh, it really is something else. So Bloomberg's line is the yellow line, and you can see that from when he jumped in the race until now, it's a giant spike up. Now, I'm going to get to that, get to the specifics on that in a second, but take a look at, this is really something else. Take a look at who he hopped in front of, because that's the real story here. So let's just go down the line with all the numbers. You have Biden at 28.5, Bernie at 17.8, Warren at 15.3, Buttigieg at 9.0. Then you have Bloomberg at 5.5, and this means he leapfrogged Harris, Yang, Klobuchar, Booker, Sayersteyer, Tulsi, Castro, Bennett, Delaney, Deval Patrick, and Marianne Williamson. So he just hopped in the race, and somehow, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, he leapfrogged 11 people, many of them having participated in multiple debates. Now, this is where it's a reasonable question to go, well, hold on now, Kyle. How did that happen? Is this like, is this because he's proposing a message that people, you know, it's resonating with people? Is that why this happened? No. That brings me to the next tweet. TV ad spend by 2020 Democrats through the week of December 17th. Look at this, guys. Bloomberg, $100.6 million. Sayersire, $81.2 million. Bernie, 8.6 million. 
Buttigieg, 7.2 million. Yang, 4.7 million. Biden, 2.2 million. Warren, 1.9 million. Klobuchar, 1.8 million. Bennett, 1.1. Gabbard, 1 million. Guys, homeboy hopped in the race. Homeboy is a multi-billionaire. Homeboy dropped $100 million of his own money on the race, carpet bombing the airwaves with his ads, and that's his entire strategy. He hasn't even been in any of the debates yet. He's openly said, who, me, bro? Uh, Me? I'm going to skip the first four contests. I'm just going to skip them. How is that even a thing? Like, yeah, I'm going to run for president, but, like, I don't know, screw that state, screw that state, screw that state, screw that state. I think that's flat-out disrespectful to the voters in those states. But just leapfrogging the first contest, going right to Super Tuesday, and his whole strategy, I don't even care if I'm in debates. I'm just going to carpet bomb the airwaves. $100 million of his own money he's spending to try to get himself elected. Listen, this is real oligarchy stuff. This is real oligarchy stuff. Nobody could do what he's doing other than another billionaire. And Steyer's a billionaire, and he's even struggling to break through. But for whatever reason, his ads are, being, are more effective, I guess, Bloomberg's than Steyer's. But this shouldn't be allowed. A billionaire just hops in the race. I'm going to spend a crazy amount of money. But see, then that gets to the next conversation, which is, well, hold on now. So a billionaire can't jump in the race and spend their own money. But how is that really all that different from candidates who are funded based off of corporate money and billionaire money and PAC money? How's that different? It's really not that different. The billionaire is spending his own money. And obviously, he has a special interest group of one himself. But a lot of the candidates have special interest groups of um, various different corporations and various other billionaires, an amalgamation of like eight billionaires, for example. So, and then when you stop and think about it, you realize, well, actually, those are equally gross things, aren't they? I mean, in the case of Bloomberg, it's got a little extra tinge of like, ugh, to it, because he just hopped the line solely by opening up his wallet. So it, it seems like extra gross. But in principle, it's really not that different from the other candidates that don't really have that much popular grassroots support, but they're just so immensely propped up by the, you know, the endless amount of corporate money and billionaire money and military industrial complex money and Wall Street money and lobbyist money and whatever it might be. So, I mean, listen, the main takeaway from this story is we have to move away from being an oligarchy and a kleptocracy and a plutocracy. We have to move towards a clean election system. So, I mean, the real answer is, as you guys know, the Wolfpack Amendment that they're currently fighting for, and I give credit to all those people fighting for that amendment, and that's the move is to get a constitutional amendment to say we're banning private money from the election, and from now on we only do clean, publicly financed elections. That's one way to do it, through a constitutional amendment. And then another way you could do it is um, through a democracy dollars move, which is an idea that many candidates support, including Kirsten Gillibrand and Andrew Yang, um, and Rokana, basically it's like you give the American people each like 100 or 200 billion, uh, billion. <laughs> oh please, we don't have Bloomberg money. We give uh, the American people 100 or 200 bucks each, and then they pick like, okay, I want to spend this money on this candidate and that candidate and that candidate, and then you get rid of all the private money, 
Well, actually, in the case of the Clean Elections Law, that wouldn't be the case because the Supreme Court ruled that that money is free speech that billionaires spend on the election. So you couldn't address it from that aspect of it. But at least you can counteract some of that big money by having more small money involved as the government giving you like a tax credit or whatever of 100 or 200 bucks, then you get to spend that however you see fitting. Um, I mean, I think the real answer is marrying both of those things, the constitutional amendment to get money out of politics, private money. And then on top of that, a democracy dollars move. And um, I think that that's the only way that we can have real free and fair elections where it's like, the main thing at play here is what do you believe? What do you believe? How good of a campaigner are you? Convince people to support you. That's really the only way we'd have true free and fair elections. Because right now, you're going to have a skewed system. Every now and then, we, get, we overtake the power of the money, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, outspent 10 to 1 by corporate Democrat extraordinaire Joe Crowley, she still won, thank God, and there are other examples as well. But there will always be a situation where probably most of the time the candidate with the most money is going to do better. So in the case of Bloomberg, he literally just bought himself 5.5%. He just bought it. He bought it. He flat out bought it. If you give him the same institutional backing and the same level of support as a lower-tier candidate – like Bennett, for example, he'd be right where Bennett is. But he just bought that 5.5%. So nobody should be okay with that. Because obviously it's not the case that this is like, hey, it's an election. We're having a battle of competing ideas and philosophies and whichever one you like wins. No, that's not the way it works. It's, that's just a naive view. It should be like that, but it's not like that. So we need reform to change the system because this is so gross. Whether it's the person that's taking corporate money, lobbyist money, military industrial complex money, or they're just a billionaire opening up their own wallet. Either way, it's a gross advantage, and that shouldn't be something that determines the amount of support you get. It should obviously just be based off of your ideas and the grassroots support. So right now, we need to override all these ghouls by throwing popular support behind Bernie and doing the best we can to get him elected and knocking on doors and making phone calls and doing text messages and all that fun stuff because he doesn't have the billions of dollars he can just spend on the race. <laughs> he needs us. He needs us. I'm, I'm a monthly donor to him, and I'm proud to be, and I'm sure a lot of you are too. But it's like, this is what we're up against. We're up against an utter clown who doesn't have a popular philosophy, who just bought 5.5% just like that. I'm carpet bombing the airwaves. I don't care. I'm not even participating in the debate. Screw the debates. I'm above them. I'm above the debates. I'm an oligarch. I get to do what I want. And he's doing it. He's drowning out your voice and my voice. That's what he's doing. He's drowning out our voice with his money. And he's also, another under-discussed fact is he's bought legitimacy in the eyes of the media because he has Bloomberg News. All the people in mainstream media might eventually want to work for him. So they're going to treat him with kid gloves. You got MSNBC, all these people singing his praise, oh, he's a serious candidate. They're doing that because he just did a $100 billion ad buy. He's making these companies rich. He's giving them money. Of course they're going to be nice to him. He's the gravy train. You don't bite the hand that feeds you. Now, I don't care because I don't get paid by him. I get paid by you guys through patreon.com slash secular talk. You guys give me three bucks at a time, five bucks at a time. You guys are my boss. We also have an ad program, but I've never spoken to an advertiser because there's a buffer between me and the advertiser. I don't even know what runs on my videos, which is a fine system. It's a decent system. Obviously, YouTube's messed up in a thousand different ways. But in the case of Bloomberg, definitely the people in mainstream media are like, whether they're open about it or not, 
definitely the approach is like, we're going to treat him like he's a serious candidate for a variety of reasons. It's just disgusting, man. It's just gross. I hate it. We're wa- the thing that's like so stunning is we're watching it in real time. It's happening right in front of us. Like, dude with no popular backing, $100 million in ads. Well, now we know what that gets you, 5.5%. Hopefully, hopefully, it just his support peters out and he becomes more like Sayers Dyer. And it's just like no matter how much, you're just lighting your money on fire. We can only hope that that's the case. Okay, next. Okay, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Here we go again. Listen, I don't want to talk about impeachment. I have to talk about impeachment because it's happening. <laughs> it's happening. So, I, you know, I know a lot of you don't agree with my views on impeachment. That's totally fine. All I can tell you guys is I, I sincerely and truly hope that all of my critics are correct about impeachment. I want my critics to be correct, and I want myself to be wrong when it comes to impeachment. Because if I'm wrong, that means that this is a victory for the left. But if I'm right, and what I think is going to happen, it's going to hurt the left. So anyway, here we are again, another impeachment story. The Democrats have now officially unveiled two articles of impeachment against Donald Trump. So here's what they are. Here's what they're for. One of them is for abuse of authority, and one of them is for obstruction. Now, I'm going to get to the obstruction one in a second. First, let's talk about the abuse of power one. That is probably, as you already predicted or already know, it's about the situation with Ukraine. So Donald Trump spoke to the Ukrainian president and basically said, I mean, the Republicans will argue this up and down and say, no, I'm not, categori- I'm not accurately categorizing this. But he basically was like, hey, man, um, do an investigation into the Bidens for me. Uh, because we hear that they're, they're corrupt. So do an investigation into the Bidens, and you know basically then you'll get your subsidy, your weapons. But implied is like, until you do that, I'm going to hold up the aid for, for you and your country. That's more or less what happened. Now, again, the Republicans argue, there was no quid pro quo. There was no quid pro quo. Honestly, that is such a weaselly argument, because anybody who, <laughs> who reads through what the, the transcript or the pseudo-transcript or whatever you want to call it, Anybody who reads through that is going to go, well, yeah, obviously that's what he's trying to do. Now, I think we can have a serious conversation about is that actually impeachable and is that something that's unique to Trump? Because, of course, that's how this is portrayed in mainstream media, and they're also massively full of shit. The idea is like, he's crossed the line, a line that has never been crossed before. And then you get into... Hillary Clinton, when she was a candidate, um, 
her campaign had a back channel to Ukraine, and the Ukrainians gave Hillary's team dirt on Paul Manafort. And there was an article in Politico in 2017 about how the Ukrainians helping Hillary backfired, of course, because Trump got elected. Um, and now you have mainstream media and the Democrats going, that's a conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy theory that the Ukrainians helped Hillary. No, it's not. That's just true. It was reported in 2017 when this issue wasn't so hotly politicized. And then now in retrospect, they act like, no, 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 that didn't happen. Yes, it did. It did happen. That's literally how we know about the corruption of Paul Manafort. It's because Hillary's team worked with Ukraine to get the dirt on Paul Manafort. So, but again, this goes back to the point of like, okay, so working with foreign governments to getting dirt on your political opponents, we could all agree that's generally bad. <laughs> that's not a good thing. But is it really illegal? Is it really impeachable? How big of a problem is this? Now, in the case of Trump, you can say, and it's fair to say, well, he did that extra step. The extra step was not just, hey, Ukrainian government, look into the Biden's corruption and give me dirt on it. He didn't just do that. He was like, the aid issue was implied there as well, of like, maybe I'll hold it back if you don't do it. And if you do do what I'm asking, well, then we'll release the aid. So is this something that's bad? Yeah, I'd say it's bad. Should he have done it? No, he shouldn't have done it. Is it a, a little bit of a step beyond what Hillary did? Yes, yes. Um, but does that mean what Hillary did was right? No, it doesn't. And it's also super annoying that the media just won't admit the obvious about Hillary and about how, like, well, yeah, we're kind of hypocrites too because that's still really bad what she did. They just act like she didn't even do it. It's just so frustrating because – the mainstream media, there are like corporate Democrats central. Whatever the narrative is for the corporate Democrats, that's what they go with. And it's really obnoxious and it's really frustrating. And anytime Trump says anything, even if it's true, they're just like, conspiracy. It's like, no, I hate Trump and he's a buffoon. But sometimes you guys just throw that out, throw that out there and you're wrong. Um, so, okay. So basically the impeachment for abuse of power is over the Ukraine thing. I think this is a weak angle to go at Trump. But let's be honest here, he also did do the thing that they're saying he did. <laughs> like, that's the part that I don't think people understand about my criticisms of impeachment, that my criticisms of impeachment have always been about strategy and empirically how I think it's going to play out. My criticism over impeachment, I think there are better ways to go after him, but this is like, substantively, it's not like the Democrats are wrong here. Like, Trump did the thing that they're saying he did. Trump withheld the aid and... He withheld the aid. It was, this was all implied. It's not like he's no quid pro quo. Right, yeah, you didn't say, it is time for us to do a quid pro quo. <laughs> he didn't do that, but it was obvious. It was implied. It, it was anybody who's familiar with how these things work understand that, like, this is what he was doing. I'll withhold the aid, announce the investigation on Biden, so on and so forth. So did he actually do it? Yeah. So um, do I think that this is going to pass the House? Yeah. Impeachment is going to pass the House, I think. I could be wrong, but I think it's going to pass the House. Now, and now that gets to the next thing, which is obstruction. Now, when you heard obstruction, probably like when I heard obstruction, what did you think of? I thought, oh, Mueller report. Now, again, this is an instance where I told you guys all along with the Mueller report, they're not going to get them on collusion with Russia. They're just not going to get it. It's not going to happen. Not happening. And I was right. But is it true that throughout the whole process of the Mueller report, Trump did try to, like, throw wrenches in their whole process and – did, like, obstruct? Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> Again, that's another thing where it's like, I think he's obviously guilty. We could have a discussion as to how serious a crime that is. Like, okay, 
if he's obstructing an investigation that is like is actually a BS investigation, is that so bad? I don't know. We could have a debate about that. But he did do it. He did obstruct. But this article of impeachment is not about obstruction for the Mueller report. This is about obstruction of the impeachment inquiry. And the Democrats are saying um, Trump is directing, quote, the unprecedented categorical and indiscriminate defiance of subpoenas. That's what they say. So he's refusing to cooperate with the impeachment investigation, and they're impeaching him over his refusal to cooperate with the impeachment inquiry. That's what it is. Now, on this one, I don't think they have a strong case, and here's why. Trump is taking it to the court system. So if he was just like, I'm not going to participate, and I'm also not going to go to the court system, well, then, yeah, you could say, well, that's obstruction of the investigation, and therefore we're going after you for that. But my understanding is he's saying, no, I'm not going to cooperate, and I'm going to take this to the court system and hope that the court system sides with me. So he actually is, even though you, you know, he's a petty authoritarian goon, there's no doubt about that, and in his heart of hearts, he wouldn't participate in any way, shape, or form. My understanding is that if you take it to the court system, you're allowed to do that. That's, you know, that's like a check and balance. That's another branch of the government where he's saying, I don't agree with what you're doing. I think it's nonsense. So I'm going to challenge this by going to the court system. So I don't think that it's fair to say that's obstruction. Now, I don't know. Maybe you guys have read stuff that I haven't read. Tell me if I'm wrong. Tell me if he's actually saying, like, no, I'm not going to participate, and I'm not even taking it to the courts. I'm just not participating at all. In which case, then I think you have a fair argument if he's obstructing the inquiry. But I thought he was taking it to the court system, which I don't think is obstructing it. The Democrats would just have to wait for it to be adjudicated in court. You just have to wait for that. Whether you like it or not, that's part of the process. So anyway... Those are the two articles of impeachment, obstruction of the impeachment inquiry and um, uh, abuse of authority for, the, um, for what happened with Ukraine. I think it's going to get through the House. I think it's going to get through the House. I think both are going to get through the House. Um, now, I'm going to get to another angle of impeachment in another story that we're doing here in a little bit, which is the response from the Republicans, which is actually a really interesting story. But in terms of this, I think it's going to get through the House, and then it's going to die in the Senate. That's what's going to happen, because you need over 20 Republican votes. That's what I like to call mission impossible. So all this time and all this effort, kind of like the Mueller report, where it was like at the end of it, they were like, see, what happened was the sun was in our eyes, and then we realized that there was no, no collusion, and he's getting away scot-free. Kind of going to be a similar situation. Everybody's going to be so jovial and dancing in the street, and there's, Twitter's going to be on fire, and everybody's going to be so smug the day he gets impeached in the House. And people are going to tweet at me like, aha, Kyle was wrong. Well, no, I'm telling you right now, I think he's going to get through the House, <laughs> so I'm not wrong. Um, but in terms of the Senate, it's going to die in the Senate, and then all those people who are you know, tweeting the Slay Queen memes about Pelosi are going to turn around on a dime and be like, oh, my God, I can't believe this happened. What an unfair, terrible process. Who could have seen this coming? I did, and I'm explaining it beforehand. (laughs) So I'm just telling you right now that that's how it's going to happen. So I think it's going to die in the Senate. Um, Now, the new Monmouth poll on this is interesting. So overall, when you look at all the polls and you average them out, it's about, it honestly is about half and half. Like half the country wants him impeached, half the country doesn't want him impeached. 
the newer Monmouth poll on this that just came out recently is 50% said the president should not be impeached and removed from office. 45% say he should be impeached and removed from office. So 50% shouldn't be impeached and removed. 45% impeach and remove. And as the headline in The Hill said, roughly unchanged. It's roughly unchanged from the beginning of the impeachment inquiry. This is kind of what I feared, guys, is that the Democrats just waste so much political capital and they go all in on this and they didn't even really move the needle. (laughs) And then, like I said, my prediction, and again, I hope to God I'm wrong about this, but when it dies in the Senate, you're going to see his approval rating go up, just like what happened with Bill Clinton. The House impeached Clinton, and then it died in the Senate. It died in the Senate, and then his approval rating went up. I think the same thing is going to happen here. I think it's going to get through the House, going to die in the Senate, and his approval rating is going to go up. And then everybody's going to be like, "Oh my God!" So what exactly did we get out of this whole thing? And the answer is going to be. Beep, 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 beep. Now the the final point I want to make in this segment is very simple. It's if you were to do impeachment, how can you do it in a way? That would work, and that would also be a net positive politically. And I know like a lot of people respond to me and say, I don't know why you look at it like this, Kyle. It's not about politics. It's about holding him accountable for do all the terrible things he's done. And my response to them is only that impeachment is quite literally a political process. So you have to do, you have to weigh the politics of it. By definition, it's a political process. It's not a, it's not a judicial process. It's not like he's actually going to jail, even if it goes 100% in the Democrats' direction. He's not, that's not going to happen. It's a political process. It, it's similar to like an indictment. That's all it is. So if you were to go down the road of impeachment, what the Democrats should have done from day one, and it's obviously they're not going to do this, and even if I was in the room and making this argument, they'd probably swap me aside, but I would have done impeachment over emoluments, corruption, and I would have done impeachment over the illegal war in Saudi Arabia. And there's a reason why I picked those things. Now, in those instances, assuming we went that road, it actually probably would get through the House, and then it would die in the Senate that way too. But, but, and here's the caveat, and this makes all the difference in the world to me. If you were to have the hearings over the emoluments corruption and over the illegal uh, war in Saudi Arabia where we're backing a genocide of babies, okay, and women and children people getting slaughtered because of our tax dollars and us backing a genocidal dictator and arming him and funding him. If you had hearings where the hearings, day in and day out, you were discussing these serious issues, you're talking about how Donald Trump registered eight new businesses in Saudi Arabia when he was on the campaign trail. You're talking about how Donald Trump has taken over $300,000 through his D.C. hotel from Saudi Arabia. You're talking about all the money that Trump has taken, all the corruption. Uh, You're talking about the favors for a brutal authoritarian regime, a a theocracy. You're talking about the no, not even a slap on the wrist when they killed Jamal Khashoggi. You're talking about the multi-billion dollar weapons deal to this evil country, which is carrying out a genocide. You're talking about the logistics of us helping them and refueling them as they do it. If you're doing hearings and you're talking about genocide in Yemen, you're talking about corruption with Saudi Arabia, those hearings, with the nonstop coverage of those hearings, I think it would hurt Trump. Because the kind of arguments you're making matter, not just that you're making arguments against Trump, because anybody could do that. 
It's, okay, how good are your arguments? And I just think the angle that the Democrats picked is kind of weak because Trump always has that, pun intended, Trump card, where he could just say, like, yeah, I was trying to get dirt on Biden because they're really corrupt. And I, as president, have every right to stop corruption, and that's what I'm doing. And that's his full court press. That's his reaction. And that's not a bad reaction. Again, I don't think what he did was right. It wasn't. But that counterargument is at least going to be a 50-50 proposition in people's minds who are apolitical, not paying attention, and they try to hear both sides of this. They're going to be like, okay, he's saying you held up the aid to Ukraine. You're asking for favors for personal politics. Okay, got it. And his argument is, but yeah, he's actually really corrupt, and that's why I wanted that because I want to put a stop to the corruption. I mean, that's probably not true because Trump is totally selfish, but is this really that bad? Is this really impeachment-worthy? And I think that that's where, that's why you have, it's not like 75% of the country sports impeachment. It's not like even 60% of the country sports impeachment. It's that 45% support, 50% don't in the newest poll. Um, I think that if you did impeachment and if you went the way that I'm advising and all the hearings and all the nonstop media coverage over the genocide in Yemen, genocide in Yemen, genocide in Yemen, Donald Trump's corrupt, Donald Trump's taking the money from Saudi Arabia, he's taking it. I don't think the polls would be 45% pro-impeachment, 50% anti-impeachment. I think if you went the road um, advising them to go, I think the numbers would be like maybe 55 to 60% pro-impeachment. So, and that matters, guys. That matters. Because then we're talking about a real situation where even though he would get acquitted in the Senate, it still might be a political victory for the Democrats. Because people are going to look at it and go... Those are really, really serious allegations. And if we're actually aiding a genocide and he's actually corrupted by Saudi Arabia and all this money he's taking, we got to get him out of there ASAP. And so it could help the Democrats. It could help with the upcoming election. Um, And it would be a devastating case to make against them, even though it would lose in the Senate. In this instance, I don't think the case is strong enough where it's going to help the Democrats. So anyway, that's my breakdown. I know you guys have heard my take on impeachment a thousand times over, but I had to give you the specific articles of impeachment that we have here, and I wanted to give you a breakdown surrounding it. So we'll see what happens. Again, I think it's going to get through the House. I think it's going to die in the Senate, and then I think his approval rating will go up. Uh, So I'm not looking forward to that. I really sincerely, genuinely hope that I'm wrong, and I hope that all of my critics are right, because that would be the better political outcome if I'm wrong. Okay, next. So we just discussed the articles of impeachment um, against Trump. There's abuse of power and uh, there's obstruction. I I just did a whole long segment on that. You can watch that segment um, if you want to know the ins and outs of that. But now what I want to give you is a segment on what the Republicans are actually doing about this, because this is interesting. So the Republicans are having secret meetings with Trump on the issue of impeachment. And NPR got a little scoop here about what's going on behind closed doors. Now, if you listen to the Democrats, they'll have you believe that, like, okay, the the Republicans are panicking. And they think, like, oh, man, maybe Trump will be removed from office. Here's the reality. NPR says, Republicans expected to acquit Trump. 
Republicans control the Senate and are expected to acquit Trump in the event of an impeachment trial. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said he would convene a trial as described in the Constitution and has suggested it might take place in January, although no date has been set. Senate Republicans are negotiating among themselves and with Trump as to how an impeachment trial might proceed. The president and Republicans disagree, for example, about how quickly to move, whether to quickly resolve impeachment and move ahead, or whether to use the spectacle in the Senate for their own political ends, including for criticism of Vice President Joe Biden. So do you understand that? Because this is super important. This goes back to the Republican philosophy of relentless, ruthless offense. And so now the conversations they're having are, well, obviously we're, we're going to acquit him, and he's going to be able to stay in office. Duh. That's point number one, is that it's a foregone conclusion. It's going to die in the Senate, guaranteed. But then point number two is, some people are saying, well, let's just do it quickly and get it over with, okay, and then move on to campaigning on other things. But then some of the Republicans are like, are you kidding me? This is absolutely a blessing for us. This is a blessing for us. The Democrats couldn't help us more if they tried. Because now they get to go out there and have their perpetual victim complex and act like, oh my God, the fake news media and the establishment are all lined up against us, the Republicans. Meanwhile, the Republican Party is the establishment, by the way. But they'll act like, no, 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 it's it's the media and it's the Democrats and they're all the establishment and we're the victims of a witch hunt here and a hoax. And the idea is they're really walking into a trap because now... We're going to flip it. You think you're going to come at Trump and you're going to be like, he made a phone call and it was bad and he was going to hold up aid to Ukraine for dirt on Joe Biden. And that's really bad. That's not good. That's bad. That's going to be the Democratic testimony. And then the Republicans might go up there and be like, let me tell you the 47 ways in which Joe Biden and his son indeed are corrupt and why an investigation is completely merited and why the Democrats should stop covering up for the corruption of those within their ranks. And they're going to go through it, and they're going to hammer Joe Biden relentlessly. And they're going to flip it so that you feel like the trial in the Senate is not Donald Trump up for impeachment. It's Joe Biden. That's what they're going to do. That's what they're telling you. Some of them are of that belief. Let's use this for our own own political advantage. Also, rile up the base a thousand times over. The only way Donald Trump wins is if his entire base shows out and for whatever reason the Democrats, uh, you know, don't turn out and you have like a lower turnout election overall. And what impeachment does is I think it guarantees you get the base out for Trump across the board that they will never be more, they're going to be more fired up in 2020 than they were in 2016. Because now they feel like every narrative Trump has pushed it has been verified. It's a witch hunt. It's a hoax. The deep state is coming after me. The establishment is coming after me. Look at what they're coming after me for. All because I'm just trying to, trying to expose the corruption of Biden and I'm here to root out the corruption like I promised you I'd do. They're going to use this to their political advantage. They are. And it's going to feel like Biden's, you know, on impeachment trial and not Trump. Wow, man. So let me get this straight. We know it's going to die in the Senate. It's a foregone conclusion. And now it might be the case that 
the Republicans dive headfirst into impeachment and use it to their political advantage. Oh, what a colossal screw-up from the Democrats. As I told you guys, if they were to go the route of impeachment, they needed to do it over emoluments corruption and the illegal war in Saudi Arabia where we're backing a genocide. You want to know why? There's no counter-argument to genocide. There's no counter-argument to he took $300,000 or more from the Saudi government and then gave them a multi-billion dollar weapons deal. There's no counter-argument to that. Nothing they say is going to convince people otherwise when you point out how terrible that is, how corrupt that is, and how evil that is, that they're backing a genocide. There's nothing they could say. It's check and mate up front like that. But when your argument is like, oh, my God, you made a naughty phone call and held up H. That's not that strong. He did it. He's guilty. But they're not going to take that lying down. They're going to respond, and they're going to respond aggressively, and they're going to respond in a way that I think will probably land even more with the public. So this was a mess up, man. Just so you understand, what this means is now the Republicans are determining just how much they could use impeachment to their advantage. It's not like, it's not one of those things where they're like, oh my God, we're in trouble. Oh my God, Trump might even be removed from office. Oh my God, they got us. No, there's plenty of people who are like, come to Papa. Oh, you want to talk impeachment? Let's talk impeachment. It's scary, man. It's a scary situation. And listen, if, I just want you to understand something. If you think I'm wrong, then that means what you believe is that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are actually secretly political chess masters. That's what you believe. You might not think you believe that, but that's the implication of your position. The implication of your position is, well, this has been, you know, more or less a decent strategy from Democrats. And they got this under control. But they don't. It's the blind leading the blind. And just like everything else they do, everything they touch turns to crap. And we're in a situation like that again here. I, again, I hope I'm wrong, guys. I'm not just saying that. I really hope I'm wrong. I hope that just the fact that there's the impeachment and it gets through the House, and just the fact that there's, you know, there's smoke there, so, oh, maybe there's fire. Just the fact that people keep saying Trump did a lot of stuff wrong, maybe the voter will go, well, let's just play it safe and vote against him no matter what. I'm hoping that's the case. I don't think so based on everything I've seen. So buckle up. And then I haven't even mentioned that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, if there is a trial in the Senate, they will have to be off the campaign trail for weeks. So stop and think about that. The impeachment hearing would hurt Biden because the Republicans are going to go on the offense against Biden. So his numbers are going to go down in the presidential election. And also Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are going to be hurt by this. Because they're going to have to be off the campaign trail. So they can't campaign. And that's their bread and butter. That's how they raise their support. So what does that mean, guys? Who's the candidate who's just underneath them now? If you take those three out of the equation, there's two of them. Buttigieg? Buttigieg. And then now Bloomberg. So if you do impeachment, you're kind of clearing the field for Buttigieg and Bloomberg. You still think it's such a great idea? Okay.
All right, let's make fun of Stuart Barney. Stuart Barney spoke to the spoke about the UK election, which is happening very soon. Might be happening today. I'm not sure. Tell you the truth. Um, and he also touched on the 2020 U.S. election here. He's going to, you know, sprinkle in some anti-Corbyn stuff with some anti-Bernie stuff. And he's just going to lay out his general philosophy. And the reason why I'm showing you this is because I'm flabbergasted and floored as to how somebody could be so wrong about every single thing they say. tantalizing preview of what President Trump would do if he gets a second term. Tax cuts 2.0. Top economic guy Larry Kudlow was vague on details, but it would be a cut for the middle class. That looks like the big plank in Mr. Trump's re-election campaign. Tax cuts. Here we come. Vote for me. Tax cuts. So we have some idea about the choice we're going to face in 2020. Tax cuts, growth and prosperity versus tax hikes and recession. Okay, that is my opinion, but I can back it up. Our current growth and prosperity really got rolling right after the president cut taxes and cut red tape. If any of the current crop of Democrat candidates gets in, taxes go up, draconian regulations come back, and the economy goes down. That's my opinion. Every single Democrat now in the race favors higher taxes to reduce inequality and expensive regulations to combat climate change. That's the choice. Capitalism versus some form of socialism. Private enterprise versus all government all the time. Now, the British will face a somewhat similar choice tomorrow. This is Boris Johnson, a Trump-like figure who this morning drove a tractor through a wall to show how he would get Brexit done. He's the capitalist in the British race. The socialist is Jeremy Corbyn. He would nationalize whole industries give away a lot of stuff, and of course, raise taxes on everybody. At this point, it looks like Boris wins. Even over there, the perils of socialism are well known. I hope that is a pointer for our election next year. He's still stuck on such like a base level political and economic discussion. It's like he's talking to middle schoolers. That's how he, he crafts his points. So let's go through some of this here. Um, he's saying Donald Trump runs in 2020. He'll be on tax cuts 2.0. And he, he has to clarify, middle, middle class, middle class. Well, that's weird. Why are you saying Trump is going to run on tax cuts and you have to clarify it's middle class? Oh, that's right. Because 83% of the tax cuts that he already did went to the, to the rich. Everybody who makes $75,000 a year or less sees a tax increase under the bill the Republicans passed over a decade. So, and by the way, all of the, all of the rich tax cuts are permanent. And the corporate tax cuts, permanent. All the tax cuts for regular people that were in the original bill, temporary. So this was the Bush tax cuts on steroids that we're talking about here. And he has to go out there and, like, clarify, well, this time they're going to do middle-class tax cuts. What happened? I thought that, 
I thought you said that that's what the Republican Party was always all about, is tax cuts for the middle class, but the first bill was geared towards the rich? Weird. It's almost like the real belief and the real opinion and the real philosophy is cut taxes for the rich, but you use it, the rhetoric for the middle class, just to build up that popular support so that when you govern, you can turn it right around and only cut it for the rich in any serious way. And then just keep promising to be, oh, yeah, no, no, we're going to do it in the middle class. Just vote us in again, and then we'll do the middle class. And then they do it again. Oh, just vote us in again, and we'll do tax cuts for the middle class. So it's this, it's a charade, man. And it's funny because this is actually one of the arguments, and I've spoken about this on the show in detail before, that it's one of the few arguments where the Republicans try to come across as more populist and more for the middle class. When they're like, no, 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 I want to cut your taxes. And that's the problem with the Democrats is that these guys want to take your money. I don't want to take your money. I want you to keep your money. Now, if they actually meant it, that'd be wonderful, but they don't mean it. They don't mean it. If you go back, you look at the tax bill that I just described, you go back, you look at all the Republican proposals. As a general rule, when they talk about cutting taxes for the rich, they over, or cutting taxes, I should say, they overwhelmingly mean for the rich. Any tax cut for you is like little uh, sprinkles that are temporary and not nearly as much as it should be. I've often said as a progressive, I've never met a tax cut for working class people I didn't like. I would reduce your taxes and increase your services. And I would obviously reallocate money and switch it around and stop spending so much on war and stop spending so much on Wall Street bailouts and corporate welfare and all that stuff. And you would pay less in taxes and you'd get more services. And the numbers would still add up. So um, it's just, it really is something else. But there's such snake oil salesmen. And then he goes to, it's all about the growth and prosperity. Except we're in a giant bubble. It's kind of amazing to me that Stuart Barney and Larry Kudlow and Donald Trump like, all of them act like Trump all the time, tweeting about stock market record high, stock market record high. We're in a giant bubble. It's going to crash. And when it does crash, what are you going to say then? I know what they're going to say. They're going to blame the Fed. They're going to blame the Democrats. They're going to blame everything but their own policies. When the fact of the matter is, not only have Republicans messed up by implementing Republican economic policies, Democrats have messed up by implementing Republican economic policies. What am I talking about? Glass-Steagall, for example, it was Bill Clinton who repealed Glass-Steagall with the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act. And Glass-Steagall made sure there was a, a wall of separation between commercial banking and investment banking. So when you went to go put your money in the bank, you knew they were going to only make relatively safe investments with it. Well, Bill Clinton repealed that, that protection, and then it was you go put your money in the bank, and they could take that money and do insane, high-risk, casino capitalist bets, and then everything can go belly up at some point. Because as any gambler knows, you bet long enough, you're going to lose. So they allowed the gambling with money that was supposed to be safe. So, and that was Bill Clinton doing a Republican reform. Then he, of course, had George Bush go in there and deregulate like crazy, tax cuts for the rich like crazy. Guys, every single time in history, there's been massive tax cuts for the wealthy and corporations, and there's been deregulation. We enter what's called a boom-bust cycle. That means everything takes off. Oh, my God, everything looks like it's so great, and the good times are never going to end. And then everything, the bubble pops, and everything implodes, and then you hit a recession or a depression. It happened in the 1920s. Guys, they called, they called it the Roaring Twenties, in part because the stock market was roaring. And then we had the Great Depression, the crash in 1929. That's exactly what's happening now. By the way, people are not doing all that well. 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. So... The fact that the stock market is doing well 
again, it just shows there's a disconnect between working people and the stock market, and also the stock market is going to implode, and it's a double whammy because when the stock market does great, that doesn't reflect on your average American family and their financial situation. It's, a, it's more of a reflection on the rich and the upper middle class, the stock market is. But then when the stock market tanks too, it actually does hurt working families, even though it didn't help them when the stock market was up. Because then you get the corporations and the businesses are more likely to lay all these people off. So stop and think about that. Stock market goes up. Average people don't benefit. Stock market goes down. They feel the brunt of it. And then what happens? The rich get bailed out. The corporations get bailed out by the politicians who they bought because the system is corrupt. Now, this is the system that Donald Trump is bragging about. This is the system that Stuart Barney is bragging about. A system where he just did more tax cuts for the rich, and he's been deregulating like crazy. He gutted the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, a bureau which returned $12 billion to defrauded Americans. I know. I was one of them. I didn't get $12 billion for the record. I think it was like 500 bucks that I got. That's because they were selling me BS um, identity theft protection, one of the credit cards I had. So, but Donald Trump gutted that because he sides with the big financial institutions over working people. But they never learn the lessons of history. You want to know why, guys? Because they're paid to not learn the lessons of history. Because these guys are going to be okay no matter what. Because these guys are the propagandists for the establishment. These guys are the water boys for the corporations. So they're running out the back door with all the money. And working people are getting hosed. And so they go out there and pretend like this system is amazing and this system is wonderful. There's a reason why even George H.W. Bush called... Um, Reaganomics, which is tax cuts for the rich and deregulation, he called it voodoo economics because it doesn't work. We're right back in that spot right now. That's what Trump's doing. That's what Bush did. Um, this is what led up to the, the Great Depression. It's what led up to the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession, and we're on borrowed time right now. Really are, man, TikTok. Um, and then I love how they have to just lie about the left. You know, they want to raise taxes on everybody. No, no, we don't, not at all. Even the examples that they would give if you push them on that, Bernie wants to raise taxes for Medicare for all. Yeah, but he's getting rid of your private taxes, your private taxes, of course, being premiums, co-pays, and deductibles. So you save money if you're a working class family. So what do you mean he wants to raise taxes? That's not true. He doesn't want to raise taxes on average people. He's going to net save them money, and that's all that matters. But that's the point, guys. And again, this is why I'm doing this segment is because he's just wrong on top of wrong on top of wrong. Everything he says there is wrong. The whole philosophy is wrong. And um, that's all they have is smears. And that's why when they go after Bernie and when they go after Jeremy Corbyn, as he just did, what does he say? Oh, it's capitalism versus socialism, and it's all government all the time. Does, if you talk to anybody who's actually a leftist, is that what they'll tell you? Is that an accurate summation of their beliefs according to them? Would they say, oh, my, my opinion is we should do all government all the time? Of course not they wouldn't say that. That's your straw man of them. So it's so funny that you get the right. They always talk about us. We don't engage in straw man arguments. We like to build steel men and engage honestly. And then you get this, which is nothing but flat, dishonest commentary across the board. Okay, next.
In the same week that Donald Trump gave a speech in front of Jewish Americans and told them that they would never back a wealth tax, he said, oh, obviously, you're not going to vote for Pocahontas. You'd have to vote for me because you people are never going to vote for a wealth tax. So in other words, telling Jews, like, I know how you guys are. All you care about is money, right? In the same week that that happened, he just signed an executive order, which is allegedly to crack down on anti-Semitism. But here's what it's really about. New York Times says, President Trump will sign an executive order defining Judaism as a nationality, not just a religion, thus bolstering the Education Department's efforts to stamp out boycott Israel movements on college campuses. So he signed an executive order to say Judaism isn't just a religion. Judaism is, because you could disagree with a religion. That's perfectly reasonable. That's fine. No problem with that at all. So he's saying, no, no, no. We're going to officially define it as a nationality. So now if you speak out against Judaism, you're speaking out against an entire nationality. Well, that's like the definition of bigotry. That's the definition of racism. You can't speak out against a nationality. You can't speak out against an ethnicity. Imagine somebody casually giving, oh, I'm, I'm against, uh, let me tell you why I'm against black people. People will be like, oh, that's the definition of racism. They're trying to do the same thing with Judaism. They're trying to do the same thing with Judaism. And also, what's the trick they do? They conflate Israel with being Jewish. So if you criticize Israel, they say, oh, you're criticizing being Jewish. You're criticizing Judaism. And now that's not just a religion, that's an ethnicity. So now that you're bigoted. And it's now we're trying to like codify that in law. That if you speak out against what Israel's doing, you speak out against the treatment of Palestinians, you speak out against the ever-expanding illegal settlements, you speak out against the brutality of the Netanyahu government, which has done bombings in Gaza where they killed 80% civilians, according to the UN. They call it cutting the grass. You speak out against the permanent blockade, which is, you know, putting Gaza on the brink and starving them. You speak out against that now, oh, well, that's just because you're a bigot. The same people who scream about how the, the left always weaponizes identity politics, that's exactly what they're doing here. This is the right, weaponizing identity politics. And they're going to use false cries of bigotry against the left here. When the left says, I support BDS because I want to bring about Palestinian human rights and freedom and dignity. They're going to say, no, 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 you can't. that's an anti-Semitic position. And now that's, we're trying to make that law that, oh, Judaism is a nationality. So if you criticize the nationality, that's bigoted, that's racist, and we're not going to allow that. So this is literally, from the people who scream about free speech all the time, this is a crackdown on freedom of speech. That's what this is. This is a crackdown on the First Amendment. This is a crackdown on uh, organizing on college campuses to fight for justice for Palestinians. That's exactly what this is. So everything that the right accuses the left of, that's what the right is doing here. False cries of bigotry and an anti-free speech crackdown. They're embracing all the qualities they say they hate. You want to know why? Because they don't really believe in, the, in these things. They don't have principles. It's all about power. We're on the side of Israel, so we are going to try to crush dissent. Come hell or high water. That's why when there was hurricane relief in Houston, people had to say, promise never to 
agree to a boycott of Israel movement. In order to get hurricane relief money, you have to say, I agree, I'll never boycott Israel. In the United States of America, we have freedom of speech. You're allowed to criticize your own government in as rigid and ruthless terms as you want. But when it comes to criticizing the Israeli government, no, 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 you went too far. This is unfathomable, man. Unfathomable. And this is on top of all the states which have anti-BDS pieces of legislation. And by the way, repeatedly now, courts have slapped down these anti-BDS laws. Because they say you can't, that's not a thing. We have the First Amendment. You, you can't do it. You can't single people out for political speech. That's exactly what Trump is doing here. Trump is actively hostile to the First Amendment. Whether it's when he says we should open up our libel laws, as he said repeatedly. Whether it's him, uh, you know, going after the media and insisting he, should, he would de-license people for criticizing him too strongly. Deeply against the First Amendment. And now this. The cynical weaponization of identity politics to stifle dissent, genuine, legitimate dissent against a government which is acting ruthlessly against Palestinians is as loathsome as it gets. Here we go, baby. I love this video that you're about to see. It's America's dad, Bernard Sanders, arguing for Medicare for all. This is all the way back in 1991. Guys, I was three years old. I'm now 31 years old. I was three years old when Bernie was doing his thing and fighting for you and me. Right now, instead of putting $100 billion a year into health care, into providing health care for the 80 million Americans who have no health insurance or are only partially insured, we are wasting that money on billing, bureaucracy, red tape. So I am strongly in favor of a single-payer national health care system. Uh, as many Americans know, the president has recently indicated that he is going to study, quote-unquote, study uh, the problem. Well, unfortunately, millions of our people will be suffering, uh, going bankrupt. Some will be dying unnecessarily while we continue to, quote-unquote, uh, study the, program, the, the problem. Uh, as you may know, the concept of national health care is not a terribly radical concept, despite what some of our colleagues uh, may suggest. As uh, I'm sure you know, in fact, there are only two nations in the entire world who in one way or another do not have a national health care system, and that is uh, South Africa and the United States. And I would suggest uh, that now that the African National Congress is free to, to function politically, uh, the sad tragedy may be that South Africa may move forward with a national health care system, leaving this nation the only nation on earth without uh, such a program. I should also suggest to you, mention to you, that the concept of national health care within our own country is not an idea that was developed last year or two years ago. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt mentioned it during World War II. Harry Truman ran on it in 1948. And some people might suggest that 40 years of discussion is perhaps enough, uh, and that the time might be now that we do the right thing and we say to all of the American people that if you're an American citizen, uh, you should be guaranteed all of the health care uh, that you need.
Why is it that every time you watch an old video of Bernie Sanders, he's getting something exactly correct? And every time you watch an old video of other politicians who've been in the game about as long as him, they're getting stuff dead wrong. Dead wrong. Whether it's Hillary, the Iraq War, NAFTA, whether it's Biden, the Iraq War, working with segregationists to be against desegregated busing, crime... over-the-top support of cracking down on um, the drug war, escalating the drug war, increasing the drug war, floating the death penalty for drug dealers. He was one of the most rigid, tough-on-crime people. I mean, it really is something else where it's a virtual guarantee. Anytime you watch a video of him from back in the day, he's taking the brave, bold position that, at the time, nobody was taking and nobody was talking about. Guys, he signed an executive order in 1983. I think, was he the mayor of Burlington at the time? I think so. Where he recognized LGBTQ Pride Day. 1983! Go look at the polls in 1983 about, you know, people's feelings on gay marriage, for example. You will see a country that was deeply, deeply hostile to LGBTQ rights and equality. And he was on the record saying, no, I'm, I have the correct position and I'm going to stand for it. And I'll argue for you. Want to argue with me? Fine, let's argue. Let's argue about it. I'll tell you why I'm right. I'll tell you why these people deserve equal rights and justice and freedom. 99% chance you go back and watch any video of Bernie Sanders and you're going to be like, oh my God, he was fighting on the right side of this when nobody else was. It really is amazing, man. Don't go for the scummy, opportunistic politician who's just always going with the... What are the political wins at the time? Go with the person who has deep moral convictions. And, by the way, happens to line up with the majority of the American people as well on most issues today. So you get the best of both worlds. He's deeply principled, and he has these convictions, and he fought for them even when it wasn't popular. And also today... He happens to be the majority opinion with most of the American people. Most of the American people agree with him on all these different issues. So, I mean, need I say any more? All I got to do is show the shirt. All I got to do is show the shirt. That's your answer right there, baby. Joe Biden is hinting that he would be a one-term president if he wins. Not saying like, oh, I'll win one term and then I'll lose in my re-election campaign. No, saying I won't even run for re-election. This is big news that leaked this week. Um, His own staffers are making it clear that this is the case. Now, my guess is they're floating this notion to see what the reaction is from the media and if there's overwhelmingly positive reaction, then what he would do is like quite literally take a pledge that I will only serve one term and I won't run for re-election. That's my sense of it. My sense of it is they're looking for a way to hang on for dear life to this lead that they have in some polls. And um, this is their 
this is a way that they think they could shore up support for him. Now, do I think that that is a good idea? No. Do I think it will have the intended effect? No. Not even close. So his own staff is arguing he can be a, quote, transition figure to a young group of Democrats. And they also think that with Biden doing this, it, it will shore up more youth support. Um, uh, you know, the young people will be like, oh, no, yeah, sure, Biden. If he says just one term, then I support him over the other candidates. This gets back to a theme that we've spoken about on this show for a very long time, which is if you think Democrats know what they're doing, like Democratic strategists, they're utterly clueless. Nobody is more overpaid and overvalued than Democratic strategists in Washington, D.C., with a lot of experience under their belt. They're the, they're the least intelligent people in the country because they somehow managed to get everything wrong. So this is an actual thing that happened where they're behind closed doors, like, you know, we got to find a way to hang on to the support here. What are we going to do? One-term pledge, maybe? Hey, I think that might shore up the youth vote. Maybe Biden will chip away and get 3 4 5% more youth support if he does a one-term pledge. I think he could serve as a transition figure to you. That argument doesn't even make sense. He can serve as a tradition figure to younger generations of Democrats. First of all, it's not young people who are looking around like, man, you better be the age that we want to be our president. No, we're looking around going, who represents the ideas and the policies and the philosophy that we support. So we're not thinking of it like that. But if you're so concerned about younger generation of Democrats getting in there, then obviously Biden would step aside completely and say, no, I want the younger generation to take control now. What does that even mean? Oh, I want to be a transition figure. What? What is that? This is the stuff that these guys think about. You want to know why? Because he's not thinking about policy. He's not thinking about what he's going to do, how he's going to fix the country. He just said the other day, man, I hope the Democrats don't win too much in the election. I don't want the Republicans to get clobbered because that would be bad for bipartisanship. These are, none of these people are going to vote for anything you propose. And you're like, wow, I hope, they, uh, I hope they don't lose too bad. How do you expect people to believe in your ideology when you don't even believe in your ideology? You don't even believe what you're pushing. It's really sad, man. I mean, it's, it's really embarrassing at this point. Again, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I sort of feel bad for Joe Biden. One-term pledge. Now, the, the real takeaway here is, guys, they know. They know. They get it. They see it. They see it. All the stuff, the videos I've shown you, all the things you see when you watch Joe Biden talk, where he's got a real problem getting his words out, forming coherent sentences, staying on point, making sense, hair trigger temper, like all of these things. His staff sees it. They're not blind. And so they think that this is a way to quell concerns and fears where, oh, he'll be more viable if we say he won't run in four years because I mean, obviously in four years, he's going to be so far gone. He's in no position to run the country. He's in no position to run the country now, man. I mean, I, I retweeted something the other day from uh, Walker Bragman. It's a contrast of 
Joe Biden arguing against Paul Ryan in 2012. Dude, sharp as a tack. Really, really good debater. He ran circles around Sarah Palin, which admittedly isn't hard in 2008. But Paul Ryan, who has this, you know, he's been labeled like the right-wing intellectual by the media, and Biden pummeled him into the ground, just obliterated him, and made it look easy, because he was still there and he was sharp. If that Biden was running now, he'd be a real problem, by the way, a real problem. But this Biden is a shell of himself. And when you look at it back to back, you're like, whoa, there has been genuine, genuine cognitive decline. He just meanders all over the place. He doesn't make sense. He's confused. He's repeatedly said he's in, says he's in one state, but he's not. He's in another state. It's not good, man. And so this is, you get the sense that this is a campaign that's panicking. This is a campaign that sees the writing on the wall. And I don't know what it, they're trying to stay somewhat legitimate while at the same time feeling like they're being more responsible, too, probably. The idea of, like, well, we all agree he's not going to be good in four years, right? We all agree to that. Joe, just step down, man. I mean, he really should. This is not funny anymore. This is not entertaining. It's just sad. You don't float a one-term presidency. You just don't do that. You just don't say, oh, I'll only run for one term. Because the real signal that sends is, we know something's wrong, and we know he's not going to last that long. We know he's not fit to do it any longer than that. It's a stretch to say he's even fit to do it now, but in their minds, oh, no, no, definitely after four years, then, then, then there's no way. They know. They know. I mean, it might be time, guys. It might be time for, like, the head of his campaign to maybe step down and say, I can't do this anymore, and I'm endorsing somebody else, because even though I love Joe... He's in no shape to do this. Okay, next. This one's going to make your blood boil, so get ready. So we just spoke about the uh, Afghanistan papers which came out, which showed that we were repeatedly lied to, routinely lied to. The people running the Afghanistan war were like, oh, we have no idea what we're doing. We don't even know what the goal is. We don't know why we're here. Um, This is a mess. We don't know what's going on. But we're still there. 18 years in, we're still there. $2 trillion later, thousands of deaths. Military industrial complex is getting super rich. And that's probably really what this is about. The mineral wealth in Afghanistan and the military industrial complex getting super rich and everything else is... The establishment wants that war to continue. So we just learned about that. I kid you not, guys. The day after we got that story about Afghanistan, bombshell story about how the entire war was a lie, just like the Iraq war, $9 trillion wasted between the two of those wars, When you look at the Iraq death toll, minimum 200,000 civilians dead, thousands of our soldiers. Right after that, look at this from The Intercept. Congress to vote on $22 billion defense increase one week after Trump slashed food stamps. It passed. 
not only did it pass, it passed with like 377 votes. I don't remember the number against, but oh, 48. Democrats and Republicans agreed to increase military funding for Donald Trump. 377 to 48. The Democrats have told me all this time, well, obviously he's a thin-skinned, maniac, lunatic, wannabe dictator. Nobody should trust him with a military. Might be Vladimir Putin's puppet and a Manchurian candidate and a traitor and not representing the United States of America, representing his puppet master Putin. And, oh yeah, I want to give him increased spying powers with the NSA, which they also voted to give him. I want to approve all of his judges, which they're also doing. And I want to give him an even bigger military budget. Last time it was um, $715 billion. Even Elizabeth Warren voted for that one. Now it's $738 billion. 377 to 48, guys. Including Nancy Pelosi supporting this. This is the day after we learned the Afghanistan war was a lie and we wasted $2 trillion. And we're also backing warlord pedophiles in that country. Knowing that they're warlord pedophiles. And this is also immediately after... Trump slashed food stamps, kicked people off of food stamps. Oh, man, this is rough. Let me give you more on this. Democratic and Republican lawmakers in Congress's Armed Services Committee released a compromise bill on Monday that would authorize $738 billion in military spending in 2020, a $22 billion increase over 2019. Uh, If passed, which it did, the bill would formally establish President Donald Trump's proposed Space Force as a sixth armed service and bring total annual Pentagon spending increases under Trump to more than $130 billion. But Democrats on the left flank of the party argue that the compromise signs away important restrictions on Trump's war-making powers included in the House version of the bill, where an amendment backed by progressives would have prohibited the Trump administration from using any funds to launch an unauthorized offensive war against Iran. They took that out. The compromise also stripped out a measure long backed by California Democrat Ro Khanna that would have prohibited U.S. military support for the Saudi-led intervention in Yemen and one from New Jersey Democrat Tom Malinowski that would have banned the sale of air-to-ground munitions to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Do you understand this, guys? In the bill, some the few good Democrats were like, okay, 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 listen, you have to, at the very least, you have to say, here's a provision that says no illegal offensive war against Iran. Here's a provision that says no more weapons to Saudi Arabia. Um, Here's one that says you can't support the genocide in Yemen. They added these like very basic, bare minimum things, and they ended up taking it out. It didn't make it to the final version of the bill. It didn't make it to the final version of the bill. So in other words, they're saying, well, yeah, we're going to keep arming Saudi Arabia as they commit a genocide. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to maybe offensively attack Iran. Of course. You can't stop us from doing that. You know who ended up taking out the Saudi Arabia one? Jared Kushner. Jared Kushner has been reported in detail is buddy-buddy with MBS, the dictator in Saudi Arabia. 
they text each other and whatnot. It's very likely MBS texted him and said, take out the thing about no attacking Iran, take out the thing about no more arms to us. The only concession that Democrats got, you're going to love this, is paid family leave, not for the entire country, paid family leave just for federal workers. Here's the kicker. They didn't get it because Democrats drew the line and said, you better get off this. No, 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 no. They got it because Ivanka Trump went to daddy and was like, please keep this in the bill. Why is it every single time, every single time, we need the Democrats to actually resist? They're nowhere to be found. You increase his NSA spying. You sat on your hands as he's cutting food stamps. You've repeatedly increased his military spending while you simultaneously call him a dictator and a Putin puppet. If there was ever a time to actually resist, now is the time. Guys, that's the thing I've always wanted. I want the Democrats to resist on substance. I want them, they just passed a minimum wage increase in the House and they never spoke about it. That's how you resist. You say, I just passed a minimum wage increase, and Mitch McConnell's blocking it, and Donald Trump is blocking it, and hey, you American people, 80% of you agree with this. We're trying to give people a living wage. They're blocking it. Ask the Republicans why they won't let you have higher wages. Ask the Republicans why they want you to work and also live in poverty at the same time. Why Why are you not doing that? Why are you not arguing about that? Why are you not making that a cornerstone of of campaigning? They also just passed a bill... That cuts drug prices about 50%, the Democrats did. It increases Medicare benefits to include vision and dental. Nobody's talking about it. Donald Trump was on the campaign trail in 2016, swearing up and down he supported negotiating for better drug prices. Now a bill comes up for that, he's like, oh, oh, that? No, no, I'm against that. Make him pay for it. Make him pay a political price. Instead, they don't make him pay any price when they, they block good legislation that the Democrats do, and now, as they're impeaching him, which, by the way, is going to fail, not only are they uh, giving him his military budget and everything he wants in his military budget, but also they're agreeing to uh, a vote on the USMCA, which is the, is the new NAFTA. How embarrassing are you? How embarrassing are you? So he's going to, guys, stop and think about this. Oh, my God, this is all hitting me at once. He's going to win impeachment in the Senate. He's going to be acquitted. He's going to brag about that. At the same time he's bragging about that, he's going to be on the campaign trail bragging about passing the USMCA, the new NAFTA, saying, oh, my God, it's a better trade deal. See, I told you I'd fight for workers. And he's going to be bragging about this. I got my space force. I got my space force. And I'm protecting, there's also a pay increase for the military in there. Oh, I want to treat our veterans so well, I got a big pay increase. The Democrats didn't want to do that, but I made them do it. Pays no political price for blocking the minimum wage increase. Pays no political price for not uh, cutting drug prices, even though the Democrats passed bills for those things. Democrats give him everything he wants for the military. And again, this is at the same time cutting food stamps, and we just learned how the Afghanistan war was a farce based on lies. And they're like, yeah, no, I don't care. Here, take all the money. Take all the money. I don't care. Whatever you want. They gave him more than he asked for last year. This year, I don't know what he was asking for, but I'm sure it's, it's still a giant increase. 
that they gave him. This is unfathomably weak. Our country is so beyond broken. Massive credit to Ro Khanna for giving an impassioned speech against this. Massive credit to Bernie Sanders for doing a joint statement with Ro Khanna, ripping this in a thousand different ways. Democrats are trying to make you believe, and I'm not kidding, they're saying, oh, this military bill is progressive. What? Progressive? Why? Because it has paid family leave only for federal workers and only because Ivanka tried to get it in there? I just told you, this bill allows for an illegal war against Iran. This bill allows for arming Saudi Arabia as they commit a genocide. This bill gives them Space Force, which, by the way, you think this is it with Space Force? It's a whole new branch of government. When all is said and done on Space Force, it's, gonna, it's probably going to cost over a trillion dollars. They're just going to blow money in space. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Failure on top of failure on top of failure. If this doesn't drive you crazy, you are not paying attention. All right, final story of the day, guys. YouTube has announced an even bigger crackdown on what they call borderline content. They released a a blog, and they also bragged about what they view as their accomplishments and their progress on this front. So let me give you some of that here. YouTube is an open video platform where anyone can upload a video and share it with the world. And with this openness comes incredible opportunities as well as challenges. That's why we're we're always working to balance a creative expression with our responsibility to protect the community from harmful content. Our community guidelines set the rules of the road on YouTube and a combination of people and machines help us remove more violative content than ever before. That said, there will always be content on YouTube that brushes up against our policies, but doesn't quite cross the line. So over the past couple of years, we've been working to raise authoritative voices on YouTube, oh boy, and reduce the spread of borderline content and harmful misinformation. And we are already seeing great progress. Authoritative news is thriving on our site. And since January 2019, we've launched over 30 different changes to reduce recommendations of borderline content and harmful misinformation. The result is a 70% average drop in watch time of this content coming from non-subscribed recommendations in the U.S. Raising authoritative voices on YouTube. More and more people turn to YouTube to catch up on the latest news or simply learn more about the topics they're curious about, whether it's climate change or a natural disaster. For topics like music or entertainment, relevance, newness, and popularity are most helpful to understand what people are interested in. But for subjects such as news, science, and historical events, where accuracy and authoritativeness are key, the quality of information and context matters most, much more than engagement. That's why we've redoubled our efforts to raise authoritative sources to the top and introduced a uh, sweet suit, I should know that word, but I don't, (laughs) of features to tackle this challenge holistically. Elevating authoritative sources in our system. In 2017, we started to prioritize authoritative voices, including new sources like 
CNN, Fox News, Jovem Pan, India Today, and The Guardian for news and information queries and search results and watch next panels. Let's say you're looking to learn more about a newsworthy event. For example, try searching for Brexit. While there will be slight variations, on average, 93% of the videos in the global top 10 results come from high authority channels. That's it. They just admitted to it. They just admitted to it. Now, we've speculated for a long time, well, hold on now. This is weird. We used to show up in the recommended box a hell of a lot more than we do, and that's how you grow the channel. That's how you, you know, spread the content is if you go into a rabbit hole of watching like news-related content, it used to be a guarantee that at some point you're going to stumble across a secular talk video. Why? Because we release so much content all the time, and we know how to do it where the metadata is full and all that stuff, which I won't get into the details of that. But long story short, we used the rules as they were originally set up to our advantage in the sense that, you know, it's like outworking others, not like gaming it in our favor or anything. No, just release a lot of content, do quality content, and we know exactly how to make it so that the content spreads far and wide. Well, at a certain point, happened to coincide right around the first adpocalypse, but then it got worse as time went by, it became readily apparent that the growth rate slowed. Now, part of that was because the tremendous growth was during the 2016 election, which makes all the sense in the world. And then after that, it did slow down, but some of it was natural, so you couldn't tell how much is because it's not an election and how much is because the algorithm seriously doesn't like us. Well, now we know as a matter of fact. Guys, when they talk about borderline content, they are literally talking about me and people like me on YouTube because independent news and politics on YouTube, they do not trust us because they do not know what we're going to say and they can't control us. So they think we are borderline, and they want to redirect as much as possible to authoritative sources, authoritative being CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News. There was a time, remember when the chemical attacks ha happened in Syria? I was skeptical of the narrative that the media was pushing out there. Jimmy Dore is another example of somebody who was skeptical of the narrative that was being put out there. Well, we just got word last week of an OPCW report where there are now multiple whistleblowers saying the chemical attack wasn't done by Assad. Now, all of mainstream media comes after us for questioning the narrative. They didn't even allow the inspectors in yet, and they were all like, nope, 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 that's it. It was definitely Assad, and it's over. Wait, what? Well, at a time when he's already winning the war, he's going to do a gas attack against his own people, that is the only thing that could draw the West back into the conflict. And would you look at that? That's exactly what happened. And by the way, the guy, don't you guys remember? Assad gave up his chemical weapons. Remember when there was the um, press conference with the Russian guy and John Kerry? And John Kerry and the, the Russians were like, is there anything he could do to, you know, get you guys off his ass, basically? And Kerry was like, yeah, he can give up his chemical weapons, but he'll never do that. And then the very next day, he was like, I'm giving up all my chemical weapons. He allowed the international community in. They took all the chemical weapons, and that was that. So then after they had taken all of his chemical weapons, he did a chemical weapons attack. And before the investigators even checked it, they were like, yep, it was definitely him. It's over. And all of mainstream media said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah it, definitely, all aside. 
Now, by the way, I'm not saying Assad's a good person at all. He definitely has blood on his hands, no doubt about it. There's a brutal civil war going on over there. He's not, it's not all puppies and rainbows and all that stuff. No, of course not. But I was skeptical of that narrative, and I was correct. Now the whistleblowers are coming out and saying, yeah, it's not what they portrayed it as. All of those videos were considered borderline content. We were right. If YouTube existed back when the Iraq war happened, all of us who would have questioned the narrative to go to the Iraq war, they would have said we're borderline content. And the mainstream media, which was pushing the war, they would have been considered legitimate authoritative content. Even though they were pushing for a war based on lies and we would have been questioning the war, they would have said this is their Saddam Hussein apologist. They're dictator apologists. So they're not authoritative sources. Of course we should punish them with the algorithm. Of course we should, obviously. What about the DNC when they rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders? We're one of you know, few outlets that was going through the WikiLeaks talking about the results. And what did mainstream media do? They said, oh, we found two examples of people making fake WikiLeaks and so they just brushed it all aside. It was like, nope, 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 there's, there's nothing to see here. It was, it's all fake news. So think about that. If you're reporting on the facts about the DNC rigging the primary against Bernie, that would have been considered borderline content because all of mainstream media was like, nope, nope, we're not going to talk about that because there were a few fakes. Therefore, the whole thing is bad. A couple of bad apples spoiled the whole bunch. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Mainstream media has pushed for virtually every war in my lifetime. We just had Brian Williams, when they were bombing Syria, we just had Brian Williams talking about the beauty of our weapons. We just had Fareed Zakaria talking about, today's the day Donald Trump became president. And they're authoritative. They're authoritative. They get stuff wrong all the time. They went all in on Russiagate and the Mueller report. I was skeptical all along. I was right. I said you're not going to get him on collusion. They didn't get him on collusion. But my stuff was considered borderline. My stuff was considered not authoritative. Do you see the problem here? Who's going to watch the Watchmen? Why is it CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News are considered authoritative, no matter how much they get stuff wrong? I mean, listen, Fox News is authoritative? The same network that said about our first black president that he did a terrorist fist jab with his wife or whoever it was, that's an authoritative source? The network that employs Sean Hannity is an authoritative source? Are you kidding me? Fox and Friends with a collective IQ of 12? They're an authoritative source, but we're not. But they're admitting it now. They're saying, hey, man, you are the borderline content we're talking about. News and politics is that genre where it's borderline content. And if you're independent, we don't know what you're going to say, so you're all the same. By the way, there's going to be no distinction between left independent, right independent, far right independent. No distinction at all. None. None. You're all the same. We're going to redirect as much to CNN as humanly possible, redirect as much to MSNBC and Fox News as possible. I don't usually ask stuff like this, but I'm going to. If you watch these videos, some people watch every video, but they don't subscribe. Hit the subscribe button. Click the bell. Click the bell. Because that will, every time a video is released, it's going to immediately let you know. Because who knows how far they're going to take it. Are they going to make it, you know, that they hide it? Even if you are subscribed, in that case, I don't even know if subscribing will help. But I don't know how far they're going to take it. But I'm trying to make it so that you, you can know what's going on with the show as much as humanly possible. Follow me on Twitter, at Kyle Kalinske. Obviously, if anything big happens, I'll let you know there, or tell you where I'm going or whatever it might be. Uh, click the subscribe button. Click the bell. When it comes to other hosts, 
who you like. Do the same thing if they're in the news and politics genre. If you can, patreon.com slash secular talk. You can give two bucks a month or three bucks a month. Again, this isn't just about me. If you want to give to any of the other progressive uh, creators or or non-political creators who are still somewhat controversial, please support them on Patreon as well. Just a little bit makes all the difference. Because remember, none of us trust YouTube anymore. Ever since we had that original adpocalypse where they were just like, how about we take all of your funding overnight? All of us panicked. We're like, what is this? I didn't even know this was possible. I didn't know this was a thing. I didn't even know this was a menu on the table. You're just going to, I'm casually going to take all the funding. What? They've done it once. They've cut it in half. They always mess with the numbers. They're messing with the algorithm. So I don't know how bad it's going to get. I don't know if at some point we'll need to go to a new platform. I have no idea, but what I do know is they do not like independent news and politics across the board. Anybody in independent news and politics, they do not like because we are the borderline content they talk about because we are giving alternative news. We're giving an alternative narrative. Now, I'm also a political commentator. I'm not just a news guy. I give my opinion. I talk about that stuff, but they hate that. They hate that. They can't swear by the stuff I'm saying. They don't agree with me when I say we should legalize tax and regulate drugs. They, they probably don't agree with me when I say basic things like we should have Medicare for all and free college and a living wage. They probably don't agree with ending the wars. So just know that this is what's going on. The algorithm is openly discriminating against news and politics, all independent news and politics. And if you're independent news and politics and you think it's not affecting you, it is. It is. Factor in the 2016 election, did you know, did you know this channel doubled in size? Doubled. I don't remember the exact numbers. I went from like 200,000 to 400,000 in one election cycle. Subscriber growth this time around is a snail's pace. We used to gain 30 to 40,000 subs a month. A month. Now we get about 10. Why? Why? It is because of the algorithm. It is because of the algorithm. There's no doubt about it. None at all. So, subscribe. Like, comment, click the bell, and just spread the word as much as possible because this is, it's frustrating. It is. It is because I'm not asking for special treatment. I'm just asking for rules that are actually free and open and fair, and it's a 100-yard dash, and we all start at the same place. That's all I'm asking for because if you give me an equal competition with the likes of CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News, I will destroy them in this medium of YouTube absolutely obliterate them obliterate them and we were until they changed the rules there was a time when cnn videos got like 2000 views a pop now routinely get over 400,000 views how how is it because they're good is it because don lemon and anderson cooper and wolf blitzer their smug faces are all of a sudden so likable no it's because they're getting all the traffic from the algorithm it redirects back to them all the time So I think it's a terrible system. I think it's messed up. I think things need to change, but I don't think they're going to change. So I need you guys to spread the word around the algorithm, which is suppressing us. All right, guys, I'm out of time. I got to go. Peace.